40, 0 in. The sun had just set, and the red street lamps were coming to life all over campus as Alden and Joe stepped into the seminarium. It was empty inside. It always was. Alden wasn't sure if summonings just didn't happen that often or if Joe somehow booked the whole building every time. Even though he knew he should be focused on the trip ahead, Alden's mind was still reeling from the conversation they'd just had. He was afraid, excited, and confused in equal measures, and more than a little overwhelmed by it all. How did Gorgon even know about the skill? Would leveling it in the way the designers had intended really be better than going for a more normal path? Or would Alden just be wasting time chasing after something different, but not necessarily better? Then what he could more easily grasp? Giving up new skill selection and spell impressions for something unknown sounded like a huge gamble. What about spell instruction? He asked quietly as they walked over to the runic pattern Joe always suggested they use for the trip to Moon the Gund. You didn't mention that. It was listed by the system as a possible reward summoners might offer. And instruction would be different than an impression, wouldn't it? Even here, when he was fairly sure it was only the two of them, Alden found he couldn't ask the specific question about authority he wanted to ask. It was locked tight by the contract and maybe, just a little bit, by his own feelings about the answer. If he understood everything correctly, accumulating unbound authority meant he should be able to use it to cast spells, shouldn't he? Just like wizards did, if someone would teach him. He stood inside the pattern and faced Joe. The bomb was in a small black carrying case on the floor between them. The Artanen regarded Alden in silence for a surprisingly long time. Do you actually want to learn the sorts of spells wizards use? He finally asked in an even voice. Because you can't just memorize any of the good ones by mimicking a set of actions. It's not like using word chains. Those are an ancient and simple exchange, far more similar to contracts than to modern spellcraft. You'd have to start from the bottom and magic is hard. You have some of the right qualifications for it, but the ones you lack would make it exponentially more difficult for you than for an Artanen. But not impossible? Probably not impossible. If you were very, very stubborn and had the necessary time and quite a lot of help, and it would benefit you in some ways, but I don't recommend you pursue it, especially if you think you might like it. In fact, let me say that more clearly, I strongly discourage you from studying wizardry, and I myself am unwilling to teach it to you. I didn't ask you to. Alden wished he didn't feel a little hurt. It wasn't like he had expected Joe to say, yes, of course, here's a list of all my favorite spells. But such a firm denial still felt unexpectedly sharp. It's not because I think you're incapable or undeserving, Joe said, just in case that isn't obvious from our previous interactions. It's fine. I can tell that it's not from your tone. Alden glared at him. I'm fine. I'm just dealing with a lot of new information right now. Joe sighed dramatically. If you must learn a spell to satisfy your curiosity at some point, there are a few that are simple trinkets. 
they're so easy that they barely even qualify, and even non-artinans can perform them. I'm sure someone will offer you one at some point and present it as true instruction. Learn those if you like, but pursuing anything more, it would be a cruel thing to do to yourself. Despite the sigh, he sounded sincere. Well, all right then. Alden wanted to ask a lot more questions now, but this wasn't the time or place. He had a job to do. What do I do if the dad freaks out and I can't take the kids today? He shouldn't, said Joe. I was in touch with them this morning, and she says she's had a thorough talk with him. They're growing more concerned about some of the readings they're getting on the detectors at the lab. So you look like a better option than you did a few nights ago, I imagine. Alden nodded. A second later the familiar berry-picking quest assignment popped up on his interface, but this time it looked a little different. Quest offer, assist superior Professor Worley Roden. Teleport to Elepta Agricultural Community, Moon the Gund, and collect Marlek berries. Accept slash refuse. I got a refusal. Joe tilted his head. You were bound to sooner rather than later, you know. You've been very busy lately. It's not quite as clear-cut when your posting is spread across several days and events and includes sub-assignments. But my evening quests count as individuals, and the university assigning you to multiple posts is taken into consideration. You also responded to a medical emergency. The system keeps track of it all and balances things out. Can I just refuse to come to the lab tomorrow morning? Alden asked. I'm hurt. I'm not going to do it. I was just curious about how it worked. I'm sure the system will tell you if you fiddle around with it. But your original quest with the university is still in progress. There are a couple of different ways for them to have issued the assignment. But it probably officially started the moment the orientation meeting finished. And it won't end until the final exam is complete. Anything lab or medical team related is still on your plate for the next couple of days. If they decide to throw another party, you can refuse to participate in that. Sweet. Not that he would waste a refusal on something petty like that, but just having the option made him feel all warm and fuzzy inside. He accepted Joe's quest, and the teleport timer popped up. Would you pick up that case there for me? Joe said with a smile gesturing at his bomb. Got it, Alden grabbed the case by the handle and lifted. Wow, it is kind of a strain, he said, feeling a little alarmed by the sensation as he took a step back into position in the center of the teleportation pattern. There were only a few seconds left on his timer, so it wasn't like it would be a problem. But he was still surprised. Do you know the system won't let me send it on its own? Joe asked in a conversational tone. You have to have permits and good reasons to teleport hazardous materials to most places. That made a ton of sense, Alden realized. Otherwise, system teleportation would be the perfect tool for attacking your enemies. But when you're preserving it with your skill, the system seems inclined to ignore the fact that it's a separate object, even though it must know better. Isn't that a neat little loophole? You're saying I'm the ideal smuggler? You are. 
especially for a rough place like Moon the Gund. The contents of my case wouldn't survive the trip without you even if I did have permission to deliver bombs to Elepta. How did I end up in this situation again? Alden wondered, hopping once to keep the preservation active. I'm sure all the steps that led me to this moment made sense individually. But somehow he was now a person who voluntarily smuggled explosives for a criminal college professor. An instant later, the teleportation whisked him away, and he was in that place where he could feel nothing much apart from his own authority wrapped around him. He examined it as well as he could in the brief time available to him. I'm still miles away from understanding. And then he was stepping out of the teleportation alcove at the farm, hitching his best confident smile onto his face to greet everyone who was anxiously awaiting his arrival. There were six people left to rescue from Moon the Gund, and they'd all come today. The woman in coveralls who always drove the armored vehicle and a soft-spoken younger man in a green lab coat that didn't look all that different from Alden's were sitting on one of the conveyor belts, popping marlek berries into their mouths while they chatted. Then A.R. was walking around checking on the big metal bubble wands that would shield the teleportation alcove from whatever it was it needed shielding from in the event of an emergency. Her pink eyes kept flicking over to the table and chairs, where the father was having a last-minute conversation with his children. It seems all right, Alden thought, watching them out of the corner of his eye while he feigned fascination with a dusty robotic arm that had once packed fruit into boxes. The younger child, the one Alden thought was around six or seven, seemed excited. The older one less so. Wouldn't it be better if I just took all three of them together? He understood that the father's primary concern was something terrible happening during the teleportation, which was why nobody had brought anything else for Alden to deliver back to Joe tonight. He wanted Alden to carry just the kids. But they were so little. It would be as easy to take all three of them as it was to carry two adults. The kids would be happier with their dad coming along, too. And that way, if something disastrous came up and prevented Alden from returning, the family wouldn't be separated. He resisted the urge to upset the balance by suggesting it. It's not like they're dumb. They're all scientists. They're smarter than I am most likely, and they know what the risks of staying are better than I do. He'd finally gotten something of a handle on his position in the eyes of Joe's assistants, and it was a strange one to navigate. They were all aware that he was inexperienced, but for most of them, his words carried weight despite that, particularly when it came to teleportation. It wasn't reasonable since Alden did not understand teleportation at all. He just stood there and let it happen to him like every other human he'd ever met. He was hesitant to nudge them toward his own preferences because with the possible exception of then A.R., who had a better read on him, they would all take him very seriously and have a debate about what he'd said. Oh, the older one was shaking his or her head now, lower lip stuck out mutinously. Alden stuck his hands in his pockets, wondering if pulling out the gifts he'd brought would help or hurt the cause. He'd thought it was obvious to take the whistle, the putty, and the toy rye beat from his capsule shelf this morning. 
They were for kids, and he was going to pick up kids. But now that he was here, the situation felt a little too serious. And he didn't want to be the kind of person who waved a bauble under a child's nose like it would distract them from a difficult emotion. I always hated it so much when people did that to me. It was okay if the family convo took a while. There was no rush. Alden had nearly three hours before his curfew back on Artona 3, and the only thing he had to do here was grab a berry, grab the kids, and step into the alcove. Still trying to look like he was minding his own business, he prodded one of the tiny, squishy round things on the end of the robotic arm. Instantly, a loud zap-zap sounded. He leaped back, startled, and turned to apologize to the group. Sorry, I... For a split second, Alden had the impression that time had stopped. He took in everything at once, and it stamped itself into his mind, clear and crisp-edged. The driver and the man in the green coat were both frozen with berries halfway to their mouths. The father's hand was resting on the older child's, and he was smiling comfortingly. The little one was kicking their feet against the chair legs. Then AR was bent double beside one of the shielding devices, and all four of them were glowing and crackling with throbbing pulses of white light. Something happened, thought Alden. He wasn't afraid yet. Then then AR looked up, her face twisted in pain, and her pale pink eyes met his. She screamed something at him that could only have been an order, and before the local system had even translated it, Alden was moving. Get the girls. Go. Alden was at the table. The father was reaching for the older child. Girl. Alden grabbed the little one and lifted her. She squealed in surprise and elbowed him, and he realized his mistake. No entrustment. But no, it wasn't a mistake. He had to take them both. So get them to the alcove. The big one holds the little one. Target her. Get permission. Get back. Oh right, Barry. Suddenly, it seemed like an overwhelming number of steps. But everyone was moving in the right direction. The man in the lab coat was running toward then AR. The woman in coveralls was racing toward Alden with a handful of berries. Alden was holding the little girl and running for the alcove, only half aware of the fact that she was kicking him and screaming like he was a kidnapper. Where's the other girl? He looked back and saw her staring at him wide-eyed from her father's arms. He was only a couple of steps behind. Something's wrong. I don't know what's wrong. Then AR was hurt. The shield was on. Is it safe to run through it? It wasn't like there was a wall between him and the alcove. The tall bubble wand looking things were glowing but between them it looked like nothing but empty space. He stopped for a heartbeat at the edge of where an invisible barrier would be, and the father and the older daughter blazed past him. It's safe. Alden was in front of the teleportation alcove. The father was ripping the little girl out of his arms and thrusting her toward her sister. The woman in coveralls slammed a handful of crushed berries into Alden's palm. Everyone was yelling so fast that the translations were lagging and skipping. Did it get? What? Didn't see. The cursing swarm. Jagger Tethpit FKI Carrot and. That wasn't Artanen. 
The man had spoken Artanen, but the translation wasn't in Artanen or English. And translations weren't supposed to skip or lag. Something's wrong, Alden said. Something's wrong with the system. He didn't understand what was happening. You just zero in on your part of the job, and you let everything else go. Hannah had told him that once, when he asked her if she ever got scared during a mission. Zero in. I have to zero in. He shoved the crushed berries into his pocket. He targeted the older girl. Her sister was in her arms now. Her father was speaking, but the words were getting translation garbled into something completely unrecognizable. Come here, Alden said, bending down to smile at the older girl and holding out his arms. We'll be safe. Oh, thank goodness. The Artanen words had just popped out of his mouth without him having to dredge them up from the depths for a change. She stared at him, unblinking, for a heart-stopping second. Her little sister had a death grip on her, and she was leaning back in an effort to hold onto her. Then she stumbled a couple of steps forward into his grasp, and he lifted the two of them. They froze, and he threw himself into the alcove, heart-pounding. The notification that his quest was completed finally popped up. At least, he knew that was what it must be. He couldn't read the garbled text. It wasn't even letters anymore. The symbols in front of his eyes weren't from any language he knew, and they had gone three-dimensional and buzzy, like vibrating alien braille. But it has to be the quest notification. It always happened as soon as he got the berries. All he had to do was accept the teleport back to campus. Accept, he shouted, arms tight on his cargo. Yes. There was another loud zap-zap, and this time Alden saw what made the noise. The shielding devices flared, and for an instant, the barrier Alden had expected to see appeared. A dome of white light surrounded the teleportation alcove, sealing it and a small space in front of it in. Joe's assistants were all standing in that space. He couldn't see much beyond them, just their backs and the harsh flare of light. It was gone almost as soon as it had appeared. Alden still didn't know what had caused the barrier to activate. He couldn't see any threat, and then AR's injuries offered no clues. It looked like her arms and chest had been burned. It seemed like something the barrier itself might have done instead of some attacker. Zero in. Focus on what I'm supposed to be doing. He hopped once to keep his skill active. The symbols were still in front of his eyes. They weren't changing. Oh no. This is bad. The moon the goon system hadn't heard him. Or it hadn't understood him. Yes, Alden said in Artanen. Yes, go. Nothing was happening. Contract, he said. It was one of the first Artanen words he'd ever learned. Contract, yes. He hopped. He shifted his grip on the girls. They were small children and they were Artanans, but they had to weigh at least 60 pounds combined. Holding them in one arm wasn't something he wanted to try, but he needed a hand free. If the system wasn't responding to verbal confirmation, maybe poking at it would work. The symbols it was showing did look like they might be designed to be tactile. But I don't know what they say. He knew where the teleport acceptance button usually appeared in English. It's almost certainly not in the same place.
but he didn't have a better idea. He reached out and had the surreal experience of grasping a floating symbol that felt like a knob in the middle of the air. It must have been designed for a species that needed that kind of accommodation, but Alden had no clue what to do with it. He pressed and twisted, then moved on to the next one, the next one. The next. Something would work. It had to. Zap zap. Light flared, and this time, the barrier didn't disappear immediately. Instead, there was another series of sizzling sounds following the first. Alden stopped trying to figure out the symbols so that he could grip the girls more securely. It was a good thing, too, because a moment later something hit them. It looked like a random fleck of trash. Just a dark, shiny shard of something that flew off the light barrier between two of the adults and landed on top of the older sister's head. It wasn't even moving that fast. Alden could probably have dodged it if he'd been alert to the risk and aware that he needed to. It was like getting sucker punched right in the magic. If he hadn't experienced the massive skill drain that came from carrying the screaming bowl in the lab, or even just the surprise factor of Jeremy punching his carried object that one time, he would definitely have dropped them. Instead, he swore loudly and blew on the dark thing. It fluttered off the top of the girl's head like a leaf and hit one of the runes glowing on the floor of the teleportation alcove. The rune and several surrounding ones winked out. The dark thing dissolved into a puff of smoke. The children's father cried out in fear and yanked Alden out of the alcove. Okay, fine. Apparently, I can't teleport right now anyway. Half of the symbols had disappeared from in front of his eyes. He couldn't read his own interface. He let the man take the girls back from him and shook his arms, twisting from side to side to work out a crick in his back. The zaps had stopped, but the light from the barrier was still so strong he could barely make out the warehouse around them. The air smelled like burnt dust. He squinted, looking for more pieces of the strange debris flying through the air, but there didn't seem to be any. The father was brushing through his daughter's hair frantically where the thing had landed on her. She's safe, Alden said in Artanen. My avowed magic does safe. He hoped that sounded less dumb to them than it did to him. The woman in coveralls and the man in the coat were peering through the light barrier. Then A.R., her burnt arms held out slightly in front of her as if she were trying to make sure not to touch them against anything, stared at Alden with a grim expression. Was she mad at him for still being here? Contract, he said, making a sweeping circular motion with his arms to try to convey that he meant the whole of the system. What was the word for broken? Or messed up? The contract here is bad now. Dash. It was a question, and she'd spoken clearly enough for Alden to pick out the word everything. Maybe she was asking if he'd tried everything? Call Whirly Roden, he said in English and then again in Artanen, poking at the place in the air where he should have had been able to access his system communications panel. Zap zap. Who else could he contact? Call Leafsong University. Call Clytum Zhao. Poke, poke. Call Bo Lupescu in Chicago, Illinois. Send a text message to BTI Cool on Artona 3. Contact Stuart H., son of the primary. Zap zap. 
Contract, initiate communication with any avowed on Moon the Gund. He tried not to look panicked as he went through the motions of trying everything. He tried not to be panicked. Access wardrobe. Half of the symbols disappeared from in front of his eyes and his heart leaped. But nothing replaced them. The wardrobe didn't appear. Alden's hands hovered in the air in front of his face. At this point, there was nothing. He'd tried to touch everything there was to touch. The only obvious thing he hadn't messed with was his targeting option. The halo of light was still over the older sister. He did not want to play around with that. Is targeting actually done by the system? Or is the system facilitating my own authority to do it somehow? After his lessons with Joe, he was fairly confident it was the second. But that was still a big problem. Alden wasn't sure he could target someone without that facilitation. I mean, theoretically? Yes, it's my power, right? But maybe he couldn't do it without practice. And now looked like a really bad time to have a practice session. If he was magically locked onto the older girl at present, then he'd better just stay that way. He let his hands drop. I try everything, he said to then AR, the contract here is bad now. What's happening? She answered him. He didn't understand any of the words. But he kind of knew anyway. Chaos levels were a problem on Moon the Gund. They worked sort of like bad weather. The system was quirky even when it was at its best. This half of the moon was largely uninhabited. Joe's lab was here to research demonic energies. We're obviously under attack by some kind of chaos monster. Some kind of demon. Or maybe more than one of them. Right before it had conked out, the system had translated the word swarm. But even though Alden got it, he didn't really get it. He'd never seen a demon before. The people who called Gorgon One were just repeating a shitty joke as far as he knew. He basically had the impression that they were very bad monsters that were somehow dirty, like radioactive maybe, because of chaos. Which was very bad stuff the Artinans were always trying to mitigate in one way or another. Though it seemed to only be a problem out here in far-flung places like this. It wasn't something you had to worry about on the Triplanets or Earth as far as he could tell. Hundreds of high-ranking avowed were used to smack down Earth's annual demon allotment. It always went off without a hitch. Zero contamination, zero casualties. That was all a regular human kid knew or needed to. Oh, yeah. And the head of the Chicago consulate got in trouble recently for consorting with a demon. Consorting implied it was intelligent and capable of communicating. But maybe that wasn't a standard thing for the species or type of creature demons were. The way the father had acted when that little fleck of garbage had touched his daughter fit with the sort of radioactive theory. And the fact that it had strained Alden's skill and burned out a spot of magic on the teleportation alcove was pretty concerning. He tried to make sense of everything and build a picture of what was going on. So that black fleck is a piece of a demon. Or it was. It went up in smoke. That's a little too on the nose for the name demon. It was only a piece because the barrier must have fried the rest of it. The bubble wand barrier works like a magic bug zapper? Well, I guess that's what you would use on something called a swarm.
Alden tried to decide if he would rather deal with a single giant chaos monster or a swarm of little ones. The answer was neither. But it was way harder to avoid a thousand small things than one big one. Will I die if one of them touches me? He opened his mouth to ask, then closed it again. He shouldn't say that in front of the kids. After a few seconds passed without any zaps, the barrier faded again. Then A.R. barked an order, and the woman who always drove the vehicle nodded grimly. She dashed for the door of the warehouse and the man in green was hot on her heels. She went out through a small side door, and he stood beside a larger one that seemed to be intended for trucks. We're going back to the lab in the car? Alden was relieved there was a plan. Though the idea of a long drive across the grassland through some kind of swarm of demon bugs sounded like a nightmare. But if the lab researched demon energy it stood to reason that it was better prepared to fight them or shield against them than a berry farm. He tried to decide what he could do to prepare for the trip. All he could think was that if it was like magical radiation, he probably ought to cover up as much skin as he could. The lab coat was supposed to be mildly protective against explosions. Maybe it worked on demons? Sure, let's go with that. Something buzzed several yards overhead. He glanced up to see a black dot, like a big carpenter bee. It wasn't attacking, just flying drunkenly. Then A.R. was staring at it. So was the dad. They were both clearly poised to move. The children had their faces buried against their father's legs. Alden tried to keep one eye on the thing, demon, while he covered up. But it didn't come after them. Instead, it bunked into the metal roof, gently, like a moth batting against glass. And rather than bouncing off, it punched right through and disappeared. A tiny hole was left behind, barely visible. He took a deep breath. It was better than an attack, but it was still terrifying. A swarm of lazy flying things that went through walls and screwed up the local system was only moderately better than the intelligent killer hive mind scenario he'd just been imagining. The hood of the coat zipped into a panel on the back of the neck, and Alden had been keeping it tucked away for days. He'd grown complacent now that he'd seen what the lab exams were actually like. He unzipped it and pulled the hood over his head. It didn't fit tight to his face, which would have made more sense to him. Instead, it was deep and oversized. Joe had the weirdest taste. Alden looked like a bright red Grim Reaper when he pulled the thing up. The coat had an inner zipper and two rows of buttons. He sealed himself in. He wished he'd brought his goggles. Why did I leave them behind? The man in the green coat did something to a panel by the big door. It opened partway, and the armored car drove into the fruit-packing warehouse, its metal tires grinding against the pavement. The scientists had a very brief discussion while the driver sat in the car, frantically pushing at the dozens of buttons on her control panel. Wave after wave of light washed over the vehicle. There was a fresh burning smell in the air around it. It was obviously designed for trouble, and she intended to activate whatever safety features it had. Then A.R. was speaking to the others harshly. The blisters all over her arms were lending her an additional air of seriousness. Alden's interface wasn't even trying to translate anymore. 
There were just a few random floating symbols and lights, all of them in places where they obscured parts of his vision instead of sitting in their usual minimized form around the edges. He listened as hard as he could to the conversation, struggling to understand what was going on. He didn't catch any of the words. The young scientist in green started pulling the shielders out of their stands and locking them into rings that seemed to be designed for them. On the vehicle, his face was pale. Alden watched him do the first two carefully and hurried over to help with the third. There were a series of latches at the bottom of the devices. He freed one and passed it over to the scientist, who only nodded at him with a bleak expression, then he went to get the last. They'd put the children in the back seats of the vehicle and strapped them in with the harnesses. Now the father was having a hurried discussion with the driver. She was pointing at buttons and telling him what they did. Alden understood the words more, less, and home. Something about the way it was all happening seemed wrong. He felt an unease in the pit of his stomach. He had a sense of growing dread. But he hadn't quite taken the leap to full realization when then A.R. stepped over to try talking to him. He handed the last shielder over to the man and turned to look at the pink-eyed leader. There was a buzzing sound coming from somewhere in the warehouse again. It wasn't where he could see it, but it made his heart race. From the start of the accident until this moment, he thought, it couldn't have been more than five minutes. Things went wrong so quickly. Then A.R. said something. Alden didn't understand. She said it again, then she pointed from the vehicle to him, to herself, to the man in the green coat, and to the driver. She made a side-to-side -side gesture with her hand. Alden recognized it. Some Artinans used it to mean no. He looked back at the car. Girls in the back seat already strapped in, father in the driver's seat, it had felt wrong. No, he said. He wasn't sure if it was a denial or if he was repeating the idea she was trying to convey. We're not going with them? He said it in English. He needed to figure out how to translate it. His brain wasn't being as obliging about that as it had been earlier. Why? Why? The armored car was large enough for everyone if they held the kids. It was powerful. It was even taking the shields. He wanted to scream the question, but what was the point when he wouldn't understand the answer? There had to be a reason. They weren't even taking the driver. Maybe the protections would work better on fewer passengers. Maybe it was something more basic, like weight. Maybe, maybe any of a thousand things he didn't know. Then A.R. was still trying to convey the message. Her pink eyes were fixed on him. Her burnt hand was flapping the no sign, and she was repeating the word in Artnan. Does the car come back for the rest of us, he demanded. Or are we just supposed to stay here and die? He sounded hysterical. He was hysterical. He was glad he'd lost all his second language skills momentarily so that nobody could understand him. Although they probably did anyway. There were only so many responses to match the situation after all. Zero in. But there wasn't anything left to zero in on, was there? How were you supposed to do your part when your part was nothing? Alden looked around the warehouse. He didn't know what he was hoping to see. Help, maybe. But there was none. 
he spotted his targeting halo glowing over the older girl's head. Shouldn't have worried about trying to swap it, he thought. She's not going to be around to entrust me with anything. There was more buzzing in the warehouse now. Out of the corner of his eye, Alden saw a black dot bang into one of the robotic arms, and then it drifted slowly through it. It was a slightly different shape when it came out the other side, but it kept flying. He had to keep his head. It was no good to freak out. Focus. Think. Do something. Then AR must have seen that he'd gotten the message. She stepped away from him to say something to the father who was about to drive away with all the safety, including Alden's best chance of even having a skill. With his target gone, he'd have nothing but proprioception, agility, and freaking appeal. Can't forget the visual processing. When I'm alone, I'm just a semi-athletic human with nice skin and good peripheral vision. Exactly the man you want to throw at a radioactive insect swarm on an alien world. Well, as a rabbit, his sympathy for magic was actually quite high, too. But it hadn't done him any favors so far. All it seemed to do was disproportionately draw his attention to shiny magic stuff that wasn't his to use. He took a couple of deep breaths, trying to calm down. He wasn't the only one staying here. All of the others were, too. He shouldn't make it worse for everyone else. Zero in. There had to be something he could do so that he didn't feel quite so helpless and terrified. He stared at the targeting halo. Right. Yes. Okay. That's something. He dug his hands into his pockets and walked toward the vehicle. Then A.R. made a sound of protest, and Alden shook his head at her. I'm not going, he said, pointing at himself and the car. I'm not going. I understand I can't go. It's okay. I won't flip out or try to insist. It's okay that I'm staying. He pulled the toys out of his pocket and held them out to the little girl who still had the glowing halo of light that wasn't light, floating above her head. She stared at him. Her little sister was bawling in the seat beside her. Yours, he said. He wanted to say, take them, but this was the best he could do. The girl reached for the toys. Alden waited until she had all three of them clutched in her small fingers, then he said, one for me, one for you, one for your sister. She blinked. Her father leaned over into the back to say something to her. She passed the Rybeat model to her sister and set it on her knee when the younger girl didn't move to take it. Then she took the whistle for herself and passed the glittery putty ball back to Alden. Thank you, she said. Thank you, Alden said, trying to smile. He felt his skill activate. Bye. Go home safe. 41. Chaos Everyone kept moving after the dad and his kids were gone. Alden didn't know what the plan was, and he couldn't understand 95% of the conversation around him. But it made him feel better that the scientists were taking action. They stayed in the warehouse for a few minutes, examining places the demon bugs had touched, calling out information to each other. Alden watched them intently, trying to understand. They always examined the damaged spots from at least a foot away, so maybe even touching the residue left behind by the things was hazardous. Alden followed then AR around. 
peering at everything she peered at and always straining his eyes and ears in an effort to detect the flying black dots before they approached. There were always one or two where he could see them now. They didn't have anything like a standard flight pattern. One would spiral toward the ground. Another would drift like it was caught in an invisible breeze. The one that scared him the most drifted for a while and then, inexplicably, changed direction and shot through the air rapidly for a few feet before drifting again. They didn't just leave holes in things, though that seemed to be the most common result of them banging into an object. Some of the spots the scientists examined weren't places that Alden would have recognized as damaged at all. A rough patch of metal, a fine smear of ash, a shiny puddle like a drop of resin on the pavement. If Joe's assistants understood anything from these signs, Alden didn't know what it might be. After about five minutes, the examination ended with them all gathering around to stare at a single tiny hole in the floor. Alden stared at it, too, noting the way the edges were jagged and sharp on one side and crumbly on the other, as if part of the concrete had started turning into chalk. After looking at it, the scientists all turned and left the building. Alden followed after them, nervous and confused. If the things punch through metal, then buildings aren't that safe. But if they only punch through sometimes, then it's still better to have a barrier between us and the outside, right? The scientists looked out over the Marlek fields. The man said something to then A.R. and gestured toward them, but she shook her head and led the way down the packed dirt of a narrow road. Alden's best guess was that they were going to the group of farm buildings he'd seen on his first evening on Moon the Gund. They'd been on the other side of the enormous field. It was a long walk, and he understood why then A.R. didn't want to go through the bushes. It would be hard to see the small demons coming, they could drift right through a patch of leaves into your face. Even if the road wasn't as direct a path, at least the visibility was good enough. It was always the same dull yellow overcast sky every time Alden was on Moon the Gund. Nothing ever appeared from beyond the dingy, low-hanging clouds. He wasn't sure if the fact that he'd never seen anything like darkness or dawn was happenstance, or if the moon had extremely long days. Maybe there was no night on this side at all. He hoped that was the case. Being here in the dark would be a hundred times worse. It's not quiet anymore, he realized as he followed the scientists down the road. Moon the Gund had always been eerily silent. But now, in addition to their footfalls, there was a low drone. And the more he looked, the more of the tiny demons he saw. Any time one approached, the scientists dodged it. Alden saw one emerge from the ground a couple of feet ahead of the man in front of him. He shouted and pointed, and the guy stepped away from it as it buzzed around a few inches above the dirt. The scientist grimaced, but he didn't look surprised. Of course, if they go through things randomly, that includes the ground. He had seen the hole in the floor of the warehouse, but he hadn't put it together. And maybe it was even worse than that. He'd had a passing thought that a larger-than-expected percentage of the things were rising up from the grass. What if they were? What if the demons were coming from beneath them instead of falling on them from above? How could you dodge something that might just fly right through the bottom of your foot? 
I want my movement trait. He clenched the putty ball he'd gotten the girl to give him tightly in his left fist. He still had Joe's ring on that hand, and the hand was in his pocket. One more layer of protection. If he dropped it while his skill wasn't active on it, the magic ring would hold it against his palm for a second. If he dropped it while his preservation was active, interfering with the ring, then his pocket would still be holding it. That should be enough. One of his real victories in his nightly lessons with the professor had been mentally weaving around the loss of contact breaks entrustment rule that came with the skill. To start with, he'd had to hold his item directly with his hands or another body part. But that had felt limiting and not quite right based on his understanding of what the skill did. After all, he was pretty sure his sense that he was touching the objects with his hands was itself manufactured in some way by the skill. He didn't think skin-to-carried item was really what was going on. So a rule requiring apparent skin contact was just a needless complication. Despite his initial enthusiasm for altering his perception until he could do earth-shattering things with the skill, Alden had since modified his expectations. He hadn't been able to make many significant changes to the skill through the perception route. Joe assured him that it was an important thing to work on, but it was also clear to him now that it was never going to be some universe-breaking loophole for skill use. Instead, what he could manage was wriggling away from one reasonable assumption about the scope of the skill to another reasonable assumption, and then practicing it until it clicked. He thought he'd had fairly easy success with the loss of contact rule because it already felt like a point of confusion. If he preserved things by carrying them, then how could entrustment just end when he shoved a thing in his pocket? He was still carrying it, wasn't he? He'd gotten the hang of it pretty quickly, and now he could tote preserved items around inside other things. As long as he didn't let the ball rest in his pocket while his lab coat was dragging the ground, he'd still be bearing it with no help. The carriage wouldn't cease, so the entrustment wouldn't break. And as long as it didn't, his trait should work. Where's that switch inside me? That one that activates Azure Rabbit? Days ago, he'd been almost positive he could turn the trait on and off without the system's help. At first, he felt around inside himself, but after a couple of minutes he decided it must not be the right tactic. Perhaps it was unnatural to look for such a literal on button inside his own mind and body. If I was about to leap over something or duck or take any other action, I would just do it. Let's try that. He focused on the feeling he'd had running to the lab that first day. The long, long jog that ate through the miles, the tiny adjustments to the way he moved until he got better at it. Take a step like one of those steps. Tweak your center of gravity. You remember what it feels like. It was hard. The demon bugs kept drawing his attention. And when he focused on his body, it made him hyper-aware of the physical effects of his own fear. His pulse was too fast, his breathing shallow, his hands cold and clammy. There was a tightness in his chest like a rubber band that was about to burst. Alden Thorne, dead of a heart attack at age 15. In a way, though, cataloging the tangible signs of extreme stress made it easier to deal with the emotions. 
He couldn't stop his heart from pounding like it was trying to escape from his body, but at least the feeling was solid. It gave him a different perspective to approach the problem from. If the fear was something chemical and unavoidable happening to him thanks to his own animal response to danger, then all the effort he was putting into mentally crushing it with willpower and a can-do attitude was wasted. You didn't will a physical reflex out of existence. You didn't feel guilty about it. You just dealt with it. Easier said than done, but it was better than it had been. His mind was a little clearer. I am extremely terrified of dying on Moon the Gund, he admitted to himself. I am probably not going to stop being extremely terrified anytime soon. I'm a mess, and the trouble's only just started. That's something I'm going to want to unpack. But not here. Not until I get back home to Aunt Connie and Bo and Jeremy. Now I just need to move. He turned his attention back to how he was walking. Get the feel of it right make the power click on. Somehow. After a few minutes, Alden grew too invested in the effort, and one of the demon bugs approached him without him realizing until it was only a couple of feet away. He leaped away from it, and there. The trait was active. He'd felt it happen, like it had fallen into place through a combo of effort and adrenaline. He moved out of the demon's path and rechecked his surroundings before trying to figure out what he'd done. It was like something that had been wound tight had loosened up. He tried to place the feeling inside himself, but that didn't seem quite right. The effect was very close to him, but more peripheral. Less of the switch in the brain feeling he'd had when the system activated the skill for him and more of a... Huh, that's very weird. Alden tried to come up with a metaphor for the sensation of the trait's activation so that he could make it sensible and repeatable, but the best description he could manage for himself was that it was the opposite of a feeling he'd had before. That creeping sensation when you walked down a dark alley and felt like someone was watching you, activating the trait himself was somehow giving him the opposite of that. Why is it so different? And I didn't even know that creepy feeling had an opposite. What would you even call it if it did? The opposite of feeling like you're being spied on? The opposite of being at risk? The opposite of a privacy violation? Security? No, having more personal space maybe? That doesn't have anything to do with movement. What is this? Not quite trusting his own senses, Alden took several steps. Azure Rabbit was definitely working, exactly the same as before. Somehow it made the ground feel more solid than it had been a second ago. But the way he'd gone about making it function seemed illogical, and he was the one who'd done it. And what was even weirder was that he still had a faint sense of the uncreepy feeling. I guess it's nice, he finally decided. Almost like it's just a little easier to exist than it was a second ago. Finding existence slightly easier is good, right? Plus, he was faster now. He was falling into using the trait well, just like he had before. It was a relief to know that if one of the zippier chaos bugs pelted toward him, he'd have that much more time to dodge it. The group rounded a curve in the road, and the buildings Alden had seen before appeared in the distance at the edge of the Marlek field. The buzzing sound was louder now. The number of bugs was increasing. 
Soon, it would be impossible to avoid them. How long is this going to last? How bad is it going to get? As if in answer to his thought, the last few symbols on his interface flickered and vanished. For the first time in two weeks, Alden saw the world the way he'd seen it every day of his life until he became an avowed. The system was gone. The first accident happened when they were only a couple hundred yards away from the square, white building that seemed to be their destination. A bug flew out of the ground right as the woman in coveralls stepped over the spot. Alden and the man in green cried out, but she couldn't move away in time. The thing darted by her, brushing against her outer thigh, and she screamed. Her friends leaped toward her, pulling her out of the demon's way, but there wasn't any need. As if passing through her skin had hurt or altered it somehow, it whisked away into smoke like the one that had touched the teleportation alcove's runes. Alden held his breath, wondering if the black dot was really gone or if it had just become particulate chaos that could get on their skin or be inhaled. In either case, the damage was done. A portion of the woman's coveralls had dissolved and the injury was not all right. There wasn't a lot of blood. It would have been better if there was. Stuart's severed foot had been disturbing, but not in a way that made Alden's stomach turn and his terror spike. The demon's touch, however, had left a line of insanity on the Artanen woman's thigh. It was partially a cut, a clean, understandable slice. But the rest of it, a vein of metallic silver streaks bled into a patch of blackened rot that turned to something that looked like fleshy sawdust. What are we even supposed to do to help her? Alden thought if it was his own skin he'd want to cut it off. If only to make the wound look like a wound and not like something out of a worse kind of horror movie. I should offer to carry her. She was sobbing, leaning on the male scientist's shoulder. Alden gripped his putty ball. If he tried retargeting, so that she would be preserved and out of pain, he could fail. He'd lose the movement trait. And even if he didn't, he couldn't carry her forever. It didn't seem like this disaster was a short-lived problem. The bugs were getting thicker. Whatever was happening, it hadn't peaked. The risk seemed like a dumb one when he'd be trading certain long-term mobility for possible temporary pain relief. Just regular carrying then? Since she's hurt and I'm the strongest. Then AR was burnt and the other scientist was holding the bomb case. I can carry her? Alden said. They all looked at him. Normal carry, he added hastily. No magic. Then AR nodded. She pointed to the woman's leg. Don't it, she said. Don't touch it, maybe? Right. They avoided touching even the spots where they saw the demon damage. But what did that mean for the injured woman? Alden forced himself to let the putty ball fall into his pocket, then he lifted her, careful not to let his fingers brush against the strangely altered flesh. Still sobbing, she grabbed him around the neck and held on tight. It was so much easier to carry someone who was helping out by holding on, but he had to remind himself not to squeeze her. He'd gotten a bit too used to gripping preserved things really hard since they couldn't be hurt and he was always scared of dropping them. He was relieved when he took a step and felt his trait working. It meant the putty was still officially under his protection.
He'd known it should be, but still, in a situation like this he was extra paranoid about getting it wrong. When he got home, and the stakes were low, he'd start hauling all his preserved stuff around in a backpack to get used to it. With the added burden, Alden had to be extra cautious about avoiding the demons, but the other two helped him. He walked in between them, and they pointed out things he might have missed. Including, once, a place in the road where the hard, flat earth had a large divot in it. Anywhere else, that wouldn't have been too concerning. But Alden had previously noted that Moon the Gund didn't have a lot of variety in the terrain. He hadn't seen a single pothole in the ground during his run to the lab. When they reached the white block building, Alden set the injured woman down. She wobbled, leaning on him, and took a pen laser from inside her coveralls. It took a while, but the male scientist used it to burn off the door lock. The interior was mostly private office spaces, arrayed around a central area that served as a break room. There were tables, chairs, a kitchen, and a sofa. They helped the injured woman into a chair, and then A.R. went to the sink. Water flowed from it readily when she touched her hand to the faucet. She brought it over and washed the strange wound by pouring it slowly over the surface. A bloody pool formed on the hard floor. Alden had no idea what else to do with himself, so he stood guard, keeping his eyes on the three demons that were drifting around the break room. He had an impractical urge to stand on his tiptoes, as if having even that much less physical contact with the ground would save him if one emerged beneath his feet. The male scientist fiddled with the small television on the wall. It came alive with a crackle, and he ran his fingers over the touchscreen quickly, bringing up several different images. One of them looked sort of like it might have been a communications screen, and Alden gave then AR a hopeful look. Talk to someone, he asked, pointing at the TV. Just because the system wasn't working, it didn't mean everything was down, did it? The Artanans were heavily reliant on magic and magical equipment, but it wasn't like they didn't have satellites, radio, cell phone tower, smoke signals. Alden would gladly accept whatever kind of solution might exist out here, in the middle of nowhere on the worse half of what was apparently a very bad moon. No, said then A.R., maybe if, dash. But the man manipulating the television shook his head. He flicked away from the comm screen and pulled up a map. Alden assumed, based solely on the usual function of maps and not any ability to read the logograms on it, that it was of their current location. It was really plain as far as maps went. There were no lines to indicate the boundaries of patches of land, and there were few topographical markings. It was basically just some dots on a gray field, with a box out to the side that looked like it might be the key. Then the scientist touched something, and patches of purple, pink, and red spread across the screen. It looked a lot like a weather radar map. Mostly it was purple, but a pink blob was at the center, and in the middle of that was a small bright red dot. We're probably at the center, right? In the red dot. Then A.R. asked another question, and the man touched another part of the map. The red expanded, then expanded again, and again. A forecast? Alden hadn't thought his mood could turn darker, but it did. 
The man swore. Then A.R. closed her eyes. How many? Was it childish to say hours when he knew that wasn't likely to be the answer? How many days? They didn't respond. The red is bad? There are many red days? Many, said then A.R. Too many, said the man. Someone comes to help? Alden suggested. You were someone, the man grunted. Oh, right. So that's how it is. The contract, the woman in coveralls gasped from the sofa. She was looking at Alden. It's not here, he said blankly. No contract in this place now. They all three stared at him with wide eyes. They hadn't looked nearly as shocked when he told them the contract was bad earlier. And that made sense, didn't it? Alden himself knew that even if you weren't an avowed, the system existing was a fact of life. He'd never once been anywhere where it wasn't. It was like being told that something fundamental you'd taken for granted had vanished from the world. No contract, he said again. Only us. 42. Be safe. The news that the system was down hit the Artinans hard. The man, in particular, kept asking Alden questions like he thought maybe Alden had misunderstood the first half dozen. Alden plumbed the depths of his vocabulary to find new ways to express the system's complete absence. It's not here, he said insistently. Goodbye, contract. No contract on the moon. I can't see words in my eyes. His toddler talk would have been funny if the situation wasn't so dire. Then A.R. finally said something snippy to the guy when he wouldn't leave Alden alone and he made a surprisingly alien-sounding cry of rage. The only time Alden had ever heard an Artinan make such a noise was when Joe had introduced himself to Sophie in something, approximating actual grivicry. The man stomped off into one of the offices and slammed the door behind him. A moment later, the crash and clatter of things smashing into the walls could be heard. Then A.R. sighed and walked over to look at the map. Alden followed her like a duckling. He had so many questions. He hated to bother her, but he couldn't stand the lack of information. He sorted through his numerous urgent queries, trying to pick ones he could ask that would have simple enough answers. Well, the map page was up. He'd start with questions that involved location. Where are we? Then A.R. gave him a nod and zoomed in the map with a circular motion of her fingers. Alden watched closely. Probably it was pointless to memorize Artinan touchscreen gestures, but he would try to collect every scrap of information he could. Elepta is here, she said, pointing at a dot on the center of the map, right where Alden had expected her to. It was in the middle of the glowing red circle of evil, as he'd feared. He really wished he knew the words for chaos or a demon. It would make all the things he'd guessed up until now easier to confirm. Instead, he asked, where is Whirly Roden's house? He was hoping to get a sense of the problem's scale. Here, then A.R. said, tapping on another dot in the direction Alden decided to think of as east. It was about a third the distance from the center to the edge of the red zone. This is the... That last word must have been laboratory. Is the laboratory safe? He did his best to get the new term right. Then A.R. answered at length, then paused when she saw the blank expression on his face. 
More safe, she said slowly. But it isn't safe. Can we go there? More words Alden didn't understand. Her tone sounded like a shrug, for whatever that was worth. We are not safe here and we are not safe there, he suggested. Both same bad? Yes, that was right. He could tell from her expression. Where is safe? Nowhere, she said. Where? Alden insisted. He at least wanted something, just for his own sanity. She zoomed the map out again by making the opposite circular motion and stared at it for a while. She went through the forecast screens that showed the problem growing. For too many days. Finally, she pointed at a mark far, far to the west. Here, she said. It's safe for you. Maybe. It was too far to walk. And those missing words were pretty important. For me? Not now, she said. When, dash. Then it will be safe for a vowed. If. Alden fully understood the urge to go hide in an office and break things. Please, he said. How do we be safe? Again? Please don't give up on me. Please keep repeating it until I get it. I know it must be annoying, but it's important. And I'm trying. I swear. To his surprise and utter gratitude, she kept trying. Slowly, slowly he pieced together an answer and an understanding of what was happening. Is it better to write the words, she asked at one point. Alden shook his head. The written language was harder than the spoken. Talking is better. She went on. He watched avidly as she swiped through the screen, using pictures when words wouldn't do. They moved out of the way of demon bugs a couple of times. Alden was almost willing to try his luck at soaking the damage from one of them with his preserved putty ball when it floated near the television. He wasn't sure if it was worth the risk. It would be bad if he just collapsed into a placid heap from overusing his skill like he had that time he tried to carry the shrieky bowl. But he really wanted the screen to keep working. Because what then AR? was trying to get across to him would have been hard for him to understand even if she'd been explaining it in English. The red zone would grow and grow for many days. The number was so uncertain that then AR would not give it to him. But at some point beyond the scope of the forecast, it would begin to shrink again. Big then small? Then AR nodded. It would start getting smaller when ships came. Then A.R. conveyed this with lots of pictures of spaceships. Ships from the other side of the moon? Alden asked. The half that was supposedly less chaos-stricken would send aid, wouldn't they? But she shook her head. From the mother. All the way from Artona I? Yes, they were in the same solar system. Or so he'd been told. But why wait for help from another planet? Joe had said spaceships were in short supply out here, but surely, oh, maybe I'm not thinking about it right. The red place is too bad for the other side of the moon to help here, he guessed. She nodded. Wizards come to help? A pause, as if she had to think about it for a while, then another nod. Maybe Alden didn't have the story exactly right, but he was in the right general ballpark. Their reaction to the news that the system had vanished was so dramatic compared to their reaction when he'd first told them it was malfunctioning. 
A buggy system must have been within the realm of their expectations, but a missing one was far, far outside it. And no system meant no teleporting. For almost everyone, as far as he understood it, the Artanans could do it, but it seemed to be something of a rarity. Even Joe had said non-system transport was hard to come by, so maybe it was only the truly elite who were capable of it. And if regular people couldn't even use system teleportation on Moon the Gund, then it must be a hard place to get to. So, the people who were qualified to fix a problem of this magnitude were probably big badass wizards who did not live on a backwater like Moon the Gund. And if they couldn't teleport in, they'd have to come by ship. The red place is big, then the wizards come help, then the red place is more small, then here is safe? He was sort of right, judging by her expression. But not totally. She kept explaining. She'd been snappy and all business nearly every time Alden had seen her. Always the leader, totally on top of things. But she was so patient with him now, he wanted to hug her for it. For many days the Chaos Zone would grow because there was nobody on Moon the Gund capable of stopping it. Eventually, the ships would come and it would start to shrink. Then A.R. thought the ships would arrive at the location to the west she had pointed out on the map. Then after many, many, many days the Red Zone would finally go away. There would be no true safety until then. This was hard for Alden to comprehend. Not literally, but in every other way. He kept asking broken questions, and she never once refused to answer. More and more of these? Alden asked, gesturing to the demon bugs in the break room. One of the fast ones had just punched through a wall. Frankly, Alden was surprised he, then A.R. and the television were all still unharmed. Are they just going to keep coming until the entire world is made of them? At this point, Alden rather expected the answer to be yes. But slowly the scientist got across a different idea. There would be more and more of the demon bugs until there were two or three times as many as there were now. And then eventually there wouldn't be many at all. They go? Alden asked hopefully. Before the ships come? Yes, they would go. Only that wasn't the end of the problem. Then A.R. showed Alden a spatter mark where one had hit the wall, and she mimed inhaling dramatically. Because he'd had the fear himself, Alden understood what she was getting at. But it still horrified him so much he didn't know what to ask next. The demons were going to eventually all disperse or alter from bumping into things, and then everyone would be walking through an atmosphere full of whatever they were made of, getting it on their skin and breathing it in? Alden imagined his lungs turning into something that looked like the injured woman's leg, and he almost puked at the thought. What an unfathomably gruesome way to go. Well, now there was only one question left to ask, and he couldn't hold it back anymore even though he wanted to. We are dead before the ships come? He hadn't moved for a while, so his preservation had faded. He was gripping the stupid putty ball so tight he'd crushed it, and he could feel the tiny piece of Stuart's bone in the center. Yes, then A.R. said, her voice cracking a little. We will die. Me also? Alden was right on the edge of sobbing. His self-control was shot. Maybe not. 
maybe an avowed can live, she said. Then, after a moment's hesitation, she added, and dash dot. That sounded like a name. Kibby? Then A.R. nodded. The girl you gave the, to. The word wasn't rye beat, so it must have been whistle or toys. The older girl. The big girl is Kibby? It wasn't quite the right pronunciation. It was probably better pronounced KB or KB or something, but he'd take what shortcuts he could at the moment. In the laboratory. Maybe. Alden and Kibby can live. It's only a small dash. If the ships come with many underscore 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 and they are fast. But I think it's possible. She touched his shoulder softly with one of her injured hands. It had to hurt. Maybe she just didn't care anymore. I'm sorry, she said. We, you and Kibby to the laboratory in the father. But we didn't understand the problem until we saw this and you told us about the contract. Was she apologizing for not sending him to the lab with the girls and their father? Or maybe for not sending him instead of the father? The only thing Alden could imagine that would make the situation even harder than it was now would be, if he was placed in charge of two small children he couldn't speak to without a single adult around to explain what was happening. Will you go there? Then A.R. asked. Alden was surprised. To the lab? Why was she asking? He was almost positive she'd just told him his only chance of survival was there. Yes, he said. If the lab is more safe, I'll go there. Let's talk more, she replied, flicking through the screen. Before the is gone. Shouldn't we check on the others? Alden realized it had been a long time since he'd heard crashing sounds from the office the man had disappeared into, and the woman in coveralls hadn't spoken up in a while. He turned around, and the sight that greeted him made him shout and stumble back into the wall. Then A.R. followed his gaze. She looked sad but not surprised. It's better to die fast, she said, staring at the body of the woman, her friend. Alden didn't know if she had failed to dodge one of the demons and it had killed her, or if she'd died from the original wound and then others had struck her body. Parts of her flesh were strangely morphed, person, plant, rot, emptiness. The guy. Alden said, dropping into English again accidentally. We have to check on him. What if he's? We should talk more, then A.R. said. You have to go soon. Alden's heart was loud in his ears. If the other scientist was still alive, wouldn't he have come at the sound of me shouting? He tried to focus on everything then A.R. was telling him, but it was harder than it had been. This is happening. This is really, really happening to me, and nobody is coming to save me for a long time, and I can't do much at all to save myself. He just kept dodging the tiny demons. His skin crawled. He wondered if it was his imagination, or if it was the chaos residue growing thicker in the atmosphere. Eventually, the television took a hit, and his lessons with then AR ended. She'd been teaching him about day and night. Night would come, but not for a long time. A month or so. He was lucky. So lucky. With the television gone, then A.R. took him outside to show him the ground. They walked along the road for a while until they came to a place where the dirt looked strangely sandy. 
she prodded it with one of the white sprinkler sticks Elepta Farm used for irrigation, and Alden watched as the ground caved in around a small depression. There will be more of this, she said, pointing at it. She was still taking great pains to speak slowly so that he could get it all. Lots of this will be everywhere soon. Yes, Alden said robotically. He'd been stuck on yes or no for a while now. One for when he understood, one for when he didn't. Everything was so awful that he'd actually run out of questions. And he'd just started inputting the things then A.R. seemed to think he would need. The Artanen woman coughed, and a fine mist of blood spattered the dirt. You should go to the lab now, she said, wiping her mouth on the back of her hand. She gave him a smile. Be safe. Oh, it's funny, he realized, looking at her face. She's being funny because I keep using the word safe for everything. I should smile back. He managed it okay. He hoped. Thank you for coming, avowed Alden, she said. Instead of standing up from her crouch, she sat down on the road. Get up, he thought. Please get up. Don't leave me all alone here. We thought nobody would come for months, but you came now. Many more of my friends would be dead, dash. I'm sorry, so soon. We thought we had more time. You're welcome, Alden croaked. Tell Ro. She shook her head. He always, dash dot. Alden couldn't decipher the words of the message for Joe, but it seemed unkind to tell her that. I will tell him. You should go now, she said again. Be safe. 43. The Grass Alden left Elepta Farm carrying only the few things he'd brought with him from Leafsong, a pair of the irrigation sticks, and the case with the bomb in it. The sticks were then A.R.'s suggestion. For water. Alden assumed they were meant to be a backup of some kind in case the lab's water supply failed. They didn't look like much, just plasticky pipes with dome-shaped sprinkler heads on top, but he held on to them like they were precious. He'd taken the bomb just because he wanted to. A childish impulse, maybe, to prove that he wasn't helpless. How could you be helpless when you had a big magic bomb? For all I know, it'll blow up the second one of the chaos bugs touches it, he chided himself. This is dumb. But if the case could hold a high-powered magic bomb, then maybe it could offer a little protection from the bugs. And maybe if a dumb thing was what kept Alden moving forward, then it had some value. Because he really felt like sitting down and waiting for the rescue he knew wasn't going to arrive. He'd even considered eating the shard of Stuart's foot bone, just in case some kind of salvation was going to come in that form. But he thought the most likely outcome would be nothing. The second most likely would be him passing out like he had that time he'd met Gorgon's eyes which would leave him vulnerable to the environment. And the third most likely was that he'd just pass whatever Gorgon had done to him on to Stuart, which wouldn't have any positives for Alden and would make the other guy think he was crazy when the gremlin took up residence. The other possibilities ranged from instant death to triggering a helpful magical experience of some kind, but Alden knew so little it would just be a dice roll. So, instead, he held the handle of the bomb case tightly. He'd let the putty mold around the hand with the case in it, 
and when his skill kicked in, it froze into a perfect finger-shaped grip. He found the path the armored car had taken through the grass easily. The long yellowish blades had all been flattened by the multiple trips the vehicle had made to and from the lab over the past days. It probably had an auto-navigation feature of some kind, since it looked like it had traveled the exact same route every day. It's almost a road, Alden told himself. Very convenient. I won't get lost in the grass this way, and at least I can see a little. He wouldn't be able to see well enough, though. The crushed stalks were only the width of the vehicle. Any of the demon specks that changed direction quickly would still be able to blindside him by appearing out of the hip-high grass, on either side, fast or slow. Alden wondered, starting at the path before him. Fast would get him to the relative safety of the lab sooner, maybe before the numbers of the chaos bugs became too overwhelming. But slow might help him avoid crashing into them. He didn't want to find out how well being an avowed was really going to protect him from something that had killed Joe's assistants so easily. Then A.R. didn't seem like someone who would have given him false hope. He had some kind of survival advantage. He just didn't know how much of one. Slow, he decided. Slow and careful. He took a decisive step onto the path of crushed grass and heaved a sigh of relief when nothing terrible happened to him right away. He traveled at a stroll, keeping his eyes wide open, trying to see every flying hazard and anticipate its moves. A couple of times, his movement trait saved him. Once, he sprang over a patch of crumbled ground instead of turning aside into the grass. Another time, one of the bugs flew at him swiftly and he managed to leap away from it just before it would have touched him. Are they bugs? Or something else? They almost all seemed to buzz like bugs, though Alden only rarely caught a glimpse of a blur around them that he thought might be wings. Then A.R. had shown him a graph of the life cycle of something that looked like a pretty normal locust, and she'd gone on at length about them. But Alden wasn't sure if that was a metaphor to explain what the demons were like, or if it was actually what they were. Maybe high chaos levels change the bugs that naturally live here? And they turn into this? It was just a guess. So much of what he thought right now was just a guess. He hated it. He'd been walking for nearly 20 minutes before he finally had his first incident. The black dot shot out of the grass to his right, and though he saw it, he hesitated before trying to dodge. They were getting thicker. He didn't want to jump out of one's path into another's. It smashed into the sleeve of the lab coat. Alden swore and spun away from it too late. A puff of black ash went up from where it hit, and he held his breath. For all the good that'll do. He waited for pain, but he felt none. Pulse throbbing in his ears, he looked down at his arm. He'd already had a few talks with himself about how he was not going to have a freak out here, in the grasslands. If he took an injury that looked as horrific as the ones he'd seen on the Artanen woman. He wouldn't lose control until he was somewhere safer. But such an immense wave of relief washed over him when he saw nothing but a small melted-looking spot on the sleeve of the coat that he knew he'd been lying to himself. If his arm had turned into a mass of rot and fleshy sawdust, he would have completely lost it. 
You're the best magic lab coat in the universe, Alden whispered, staring at the melted patch. I love you so damn much. I can't believe I ever criticized anything about you. Joe's right. You're gorgeous. I swear, when I get home, I'm going to buy another one. Best million dollars I've ever spent. It was also the only million dollars he'd ever spent, but that hardly mattered. New plan. If we have to take a hit, we take it on the coat. Up until now, he'd been debating coat versus preserved putty as the ideal shielding material. He knew his skill could protect things from the demon bugs since it had protected the girl called Kibi from a flying piece of one, but that had been hard on him. This was better. He was almost tempted to increase his speed now that he knew the coat worked. But though he was itching to get out of the grass as fast as possible, he resisted. Over the next hour, based on his estimation since he no longer had any way of telling time, he took three more hits on the coat. Two against his back that he couldn't possibly have dodged. One more on the side of the hood that he probably could have if he hadn't had the hood up. It was so deep it decreased visibility, but Alden thought it could be forgiven since it also prevented tiny demons from drilling into his brain. They could be friends with you, Gremlin. He was tempted to cast a word chain just so he could sense the thing complaining about it. He hadn't felt this alone in a long, long time. The fifth chaos bug went through the bottom of his foot exactly as he'd been afraid of from the start. Strangely, he didn't know where he'd been hit at first. It wasn't that the demon's touch didn't hurt. It did. But the hurt wasn't localized. It wasn't even pain in the sense of the word he'd always known. It was far more similar to the sensation of his skill being exhausted only instead of feeling worn out. It was like that invisible part of him was suddenly boiling. For a few seconds, Alden stood there, gasping and enduring, and then it was over. He felt worse, unsettled and like he'd been shifted slightly out of some natural alignment. But he couldn't feel any injury on his physical body. He took a step and realized his right foot felt off, like there was something wrong with his shoe. He checked his surroundings, then, dreading what he'd see, he set the irrigators down briefly so that he could lift his foot and look at it. There was a round hole about the size of a nickel in his shoe right beneath the ball of his foot, and a patch of sock was missing, too. His skin looked completely unharmed. He poked his exposed foot with a finger. Feels totally normal, he thought with relief. Good. Go me. He picked the sprinkler sticks back up and kept walking. All right, so that's what happens. It's a really gross, bordering on agonizing sensation. But it doesn't last long. And I seem okay-ish now that it's over. Theories? Then A.R. had said Alden might survive because he was an avowed. So obviously that was the reason for the difference in his reaction to the demon's touch compared to the assistant's. But why was it different? Brushing it off as an avowed are more powerful than regular people thing was unsatisfying. If something about himself was going to keep him alive in this mess, then Alden wanted to understand it, so that he could keep doing it, or do more of it. He wanted to for sure survive, not maybe. Being an avowed is better. Why? Not just being an avowed. 
Kibi might be able to live in this demon-infested world, too, according to the scientist. Alden had asked the obvious question about why that was, and he'd gotten the obvious answer. The girl was a wizard. A small wizard, then A.R. had said. Alden didn't think she meant size. It seemed more likely that then A.R. had been trying to tell him the girl was a weak or inexperienced wizard, while working around his limited vocabulary. Alden guessed wizards didn't have to be born to wizards just like avowed didn't have to be born to other avowed. So little wizard and me, we might live. Magic or authority offers protection from demons. I've heard demons come from chaos dimensions. They are chaos or chaos adjacent. They use chaos? Crap. He wasn't quite sure. The Artnans were jerks for knowing a problem this bad existed in the universe and not making it a mandatory part of Earth's elementary school education. It wasn't like the knowledge had ever been relevant to his life until this evening, but Alden wasn't feeling very charitable at the moment. Assuming chaos is even a good translation for what's happening here, then its opposite is order, right? Being a wizard or an avowed gives you an advantage because he was drawing a blank. Being more orderly than regular people wasn't a particularly solid idea to hold onto. He stopped walking, waiting for a large group of demon bees to clear the path, and he tried to keep his eyes peeled for incoming threats, while pulling every single scrap of information he knew about being an avowed to the front of his mind. The best word for it isn't order, he realized. It's stability. The system told me so itself, Alden said, surprise and gratitude rushing through him. On top of everything else that had happened, the words had been brushed aside, but they remained in his memory, stored in his own personal holy wow I just became an avowed file. Everyone was always so hung up on what the Artanans were doing with the systems. Why did they create them? Why did they offer to share them with other planets? Why did they even want to make a vowed? Why? 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 It was a big mystery. But around 11 Earth days ago, the system had actually told Alden at least one of its purposes. Outright. Plainly. And so casually that he had assigned it almost no importance. It was talking about integrating itself with whatever weirdness Gorgon did to me. It was saying the two of them wouldn't have much trouble getting along with each other because they were similar in some way. How did it put it? The presence is exerting a stabilizing effect on your existence, which is also one of my functions. So, by becoming an avowed Alden had been stabilized. And apparently even before that, he'd already been granted additional stability by Gorgon. And what they stabilized was my existence. Existence. It wasn't something he spent a lot of time thinking about. Part of existing was taking the fact that you did for granted, right? Avowed weren't immortal, without a lot of healer intervention, so the system couldn't have been talking about keeping him alive. It had been talking about keeping him Alden? The chaos bugs hit objects or normal people and they changed them. A hole here, a gruesome transformation there. Maybe they were like big reality-altering germs. And as someone who was stabilized, extra-stabilized really, Alden wasn't as easy to alter. 
So maybe my most important superpower in a nasty place like this where chaos exists is that I'm super good at staying me? Yesterday, he would have said being extra reality locked compared to others was the dullest talent he could imagine. But right now? Heck yeah, he muttered, weaving in between two demons and lifting his bomb up to clear a third. I don't need the flashy powers. Give me more of the chaos immunity package, please. He wondered if his ability to teleport without as much interference as a B-rank was supposed to feel was somehow related. 2. I need to buy Gorgon more crickets. He seems to like them. Now all he had to do was figure out how to exist better. That's what it was, he realized. The demon bees didn't react any differently when he spoke aloud, so he might as well. That must have been what I started feeling after I activated the Azure Rabbit trait. He'd thought it felt like he'd somehow expanded his own personal space. And several other less apt descriptions. Well, of course I couldn't wrap my brain around it. Who has language for existing harder than you were a minute ago? Probably the Artanans. No wonder Joe couldn't define the thing he called authority or dominion properly for a human. Apparently the guy could feel his own position in reality and flex it like a bicep. So, it's neat to finally understand it on a deeper level. Now what do I do with it? Keep the trait active since it seemed to help. Try to find some other way to expand the personal space sensation more. I will get right on that. Eventually. For now, he needed to focus more on his walking. The demons were getting thicker. They became more unavoidable as he went. He got hit by several. Most spattered against the coat. A couple crashed into the bomb case, which took the damage just as well as the coat did fortunately. One went through Alden's calf, turning an inch-wide section of his jeans into dust, and another smacked off the back of his hand. Both times he had the awful jarring sensation, and then he recovered. But the second time his trait cut out briefly before wobbling back to its usual functionality. Careful, careful, he told himself, trying to see and interpret the path of every flying black dot at once. They're damaging you somehow. Just because you can't feel where the limit is, that doesn't mean it's not there. The endless grass was starting to change as time passed. It was looking a little ragged in most places. There were lots of rotted, curled, or severed blades. And a few hours into his journey, Alden started having pay more attention to the ground. There were potholes now, and more of the sandy patches than A.R. had told him to watch out for. To his surprise, the ground hadn't collapsed directly beneath him yet but once. A hole a couple of feet deep opened up right behind him, like it had just missed its chance to trip him and send him stumbling face first into a demon. Not dead. Not yet. He continued on. A new sound joined the incessant droning at some point. Alden was so intent on staying on his feet and away from the flying hazards, that it might have been going on for ages before he noticed it. And even after he did, he was just so exhausted that it took him a while to register the importance of it. A high tweeting sound, then a pair of low ones, then some high ones again. Like a confused songbird. 
He didn't start paying attention to it until it was pretty loud, and when he finally did. Oh, he thought. Oh, that's bad. It was the whistle he'd gotten from the doctor's office. It made a slightly different sound every time you blew it. The kids and their dad didn't make it to the lab. They should have. Hours ago, the armored car was fast. For too long, Alden just stood there, idly ducking and stepping aside whenever he needed to. He tried to tell himself he was analyzing the situation, but he knew that wasn't it. He was afraid to deal with it. He wasn't sure what he would find ahead, but he was sure it would be horrible. And it would be hard. And it would be his to handle. And he wasn't even handling himself that well right now. He was hanging on by a thread. I can't do this. I can't. I don't want to try harder than I'm already trying. A demon bug crashed into his shoulder and fizzled away against whatever protections were made into the coat. You coward, Alden whispered. Why did you want to be an avowed anyway? He remembered. His own dream felt really distant from him at the moment, though. Dimensions away. And maybe too naive. So what? You're just going to leave them in whatever trouble they're in? You're not even going to look? No. That wasn't it. He couldn't live with it if he did. Or he didn't want to be the kind of person who could live with it. One or the other. His motivations were blurrier than he had ever realized. But at least they were still strong enough, just barely, to make him start moving again. The car had fallen prey to the unstable ground. A ditch several feet deep had appeared. The car wasn't stuck in it, but it must have hit it at a wrong angle and a high speed. There was a deep gouge in the ground, and it had rolled once, crushing some of the grass. It lay on its side now. Only one of the shielding devices was still sending out pulses of magic to fry the demons. And since it didn't make a full dome on its own, the vehicle didn't really have its protection anymore. Despite all of that, it looked surprisingly all right. It wasn't dented or pocked with nearly as much chaos damage as Alden would have expected, given how long it had been out here immobile and vulnerable. It was obviously made of tough stuff. And the whistle was still chirping every now and then, like someone was playing with it. As he approached, he felt hopeful that it might not be as bad as he dreaded. Hello, he called in Artanen, jabbing at the ground ahead of him as hard as he could with the sprinklers, trying to figure out where any soft spots might be. I walk very slow, but I'm coming. The whistle stopped. Had they heard him? Hello? This is Alden. The rye beat. That wasn't an intelligent thing to say. Who else would be here in this forsaken place, speaking bad Artanen and heading to the lab? He prodded a spot, and the sprinkler sank way too far into the soil. He worked his way around it carefully. Maybe this was the reason the father and daughters had been sent on their own? Was it an attempt to lighten the heavy vehicle to reduce the chances of this kind of accident? The magic whistle screeched, several times, and then it made a deep belching sound that must have been the extra-loud version of its lowest note. I'm coming, Alden said again. Chirp, chirp, chirp. The dad's not answering. Normally an adult would answer. Sticking to the whistle felt like a little kid thing to do. 
Alden finally crossed through the ditch that had toppled the vehicle and made his way over to it, taking it on faith that if the dirt right below the overturned car could hold the huge chunk of metal, it could hold him, too. He went around to the front, feeling vulnerable when he had to pass through a thick thatch of uncrushed grass and peered through the windshield. Oh, it is as bad as I thought after all. The car was largely undamaged, but not completely. There was a small puncture in a window, and a large hole was cut through one corner of the roof. Alden couldn't imagine how that had happened, unless one of the bugs had been unusually potent or unusually massive. The father and the youngest girl were gone. He wasn't sure how they had died, but he assumed there was plenty of chaos everywhere now. Either from the demons changing as they smashed into things, or it was just, naturally occurring. It seemed like some terrible miasma in this place must have given birth to the disaster. Maybe that was even what then A.R. had been trying to get across when focusing on the dangers of the air. Neither body had a visible dramatic wound, like the ones Alden had seen on the woman in coveralls. They were just very obviously dead. A little blood here and there, an almost translucent grayness to the skin, the stillness of their pose. The father had freed himself from the harness and climbed into the back with his daughters. They were all sitting there on top of one of the doors, huddled together. The older girl was still sitting with them, holding her sister's hand while she blew on her whistle and stared at Alden through the glass. Oh my God, he thought, tears stinging his eyes. She's been with them like that for hours. What was he supposed to say? Did she even know? Did she understand that they were gone? I'll get you out, he said in English. He didn't want to make any promises in Artenon until he knew what the next few minutes would be like. It's going to be okay. Hang on. If the doors are locked, I don't know what I'll do. Try to get her to open them from the inside? Go to the lab and get something to cut through it with? Hope a demon punches a hole in exactly the right spot for me? It was an armored alien vehicle. It wasn't likely that he could just kick out the windows. Alden set aside his bomb and the irrigators and tucked the putty into his pocket. While he clambered up the side of the car to try the door handle he was already assuming the worst. He tried to think of how to tell the, the girl that he was going to have to leave for a while to get equipment from the lab. But maybe fate had decided they'd both been punished enough for one day. The door wasn't locked. The car was built like a tank. And the door was so heavy that Alden had to commit to a precarious angle and use his whole body in the battle to yank it open. But he managed it with only minimal damage to himself, caused by falling off and landing flat on his back in the grass. The wind was knocked out of him. But that didn't prevent him from scrambling up in a panic to make sure he wasn't about to get zinged by half a dozen bugs. The girl had stopped whistling to watch him work. As soon as he disappeared from sight, she started back. Alden stood back up. His trait was gone. The putty ball was in his pocket again, and he'd lost preservation on it at some point. Probably during the fall. Is she still targeted? He hadn't seen the halo over her head. It must have been a system-generated assist, as he'd feared. Well, it doesn't matter right now. 
he had to get her out of the car, away from her dead family, and back to the lab either way, without crying himself and traumatizing her more. The whistle was still chirping. Alden cleared his throat. I'm coming. I'm safe, he said in Artanen. I wonder if she thinks the whistle is the right way of calling me. It would make sense if she did. He'd given it to her just as everything went wrong. And it was a magic whistle. And he was an avowed. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. He didn't know what to do. It was pretty important to say things gently given the situation. And while he could communicate that they would be going to the lab together and leaving the father and sister behind, he couldn't do it eloquently. Your family is dead. Come with me, worked, but it was so cold and harsh. He needed her to trust him, and he wanted to make it better for her, even if only a little bit. I'm coming, he said again. I'm safe. We're safe. Maybe I could. Probably it wasn't the right thing, but it felt better than nothing, and it would help him push through the last few miles to the lab, too. He climbed back up on top of the car and lowered himself into it. He sat awkwardly on the side of the front passenger seat and braced himself with a leg. It was nice that the car was still offering some protection. There weren't any bugs inside right now. Hello, I'm Alden, he said. She knew already, but a more formal introduction seemed necessary. Are you Kibby? Her face was swollen, wet, and snotty. Why, yes. We're going to the laboratory together, said Alden. We're safe together. Her grip tightened on her sister's hand and she pulled the dead girl's arm up toward him as though telling him to take her. Oh, shit. Hold it in. Don't lose it, Alden. We, his voice was a croak. He cleared his throat and tried again. Let's say a word chain together. Yes. He didn't know if word chains were a significant ritual in her family but they purportedly were to at least some Artanans. And more importantly, the words were pretty eloquent, and he had them memorized. It would sound less clumsy and callous than anything he could come up with on his own, and since it was a common minor word chain, she might have heard it before even if she hadn't learned it herself. Alden closed his eyes and made the hand signs. He tried not to ruin the solemnity of the moment by letting his voice shake. My heart calls out to another in good faith. Spare me a portion of your mind's ease in this hour when my own mind is troubled. Tomorrow, I will grant another an equal comfort of mind. He'd gotten really good at peace of mind. It locked in on the first try, and he felt like someone had taken a small weight off of him. Kibby stared at him. She's big on staring, isn't she? I wish she'd talk a little more so I knew what was going on in her head. Will you say it for my underscore 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 too, she said. The word wasn't the one Alden knew for father, but he thought that might have been who she meant since she gestured at him. Maybe she thought the peace of mind chain had been for the little sister? Like a prayer. Yes, he said. He repeated the chain again, deliberately messing up in tiny ways he hoped she wouldn't be able to detect. He didn't know if peace of mind would double on itself, but he knew that if it did, accepting twice the backlash in a few hours would absolutely flatten him. 
Since he was doling out false blessings anyway, when he got finished, he pointed at Kibi and said, I am saying one for Kibi, too. Then we are going to the lab together. She nodded. Alden performed the chain a third time, then held his hand out toward the girl. She reached back, and his skill activated as he lifted her. She was still his target. Whatever part of his power was locked onto her had stayed locked even without the system's help. Oh, thank you, thank you, he thought, waiting a second for the preservation to deactivate so that he could boost her up and out of the car. We might be able to get through this. Alden carried the bomb in one hand, the irrigators in the other, and a frozen kibby on his back. He'd debated taking the one functional shielding device, but it looked like it was on its last legs anyway. And it was heavy. For a long time, he just kept placing one foot in front of another, enduring the occasional strikes from the bugs and moving on. It was harder when one hit Kibi. He didn't know why, and it didn't matter. It was just one more mystery to tuck into the back of his mind for a better day. When he finally crested the edge of the depression in the ground that held the massive laboratory complex, he was so happy he almost wanted to run toward it. It was better here. There were still demon bugs buzzing around everywhere, but only a fraction as many as Alden had been dealing with for the past few hours. Alden didn't know if it was magic or if the lab had been built in this crater because it provided some kind of natural protection. But it was a chance. Look at this, Kibi, he said as he strode toward the lab. He'd been talking to her for a while now, even though she couldn't hear him. It was keeping him together. We're going to live here for a while. And we're going to survive a demon storm. And we're going to be okay. He hopped sideways to avoid a bug. His coat was starting to look worse for the wear. He didn't know if it could take many more hits. Today is the worst day of your life, I know, and it's got to be the second worst day of mine. But as long as we're still alive at the end of it, stuff eventually gets better. He followed the crushed grass path all the way to the wall of the circular perimeter building. He didn't know how to open the underground ramp that let the car in and out, so he turned aside into the grass. It wasn't ideal, but he had to get to one of the exterior doors. He only had to go about a hundred yards before he found one. We stay alive. Help comes. I go back home to Earth. You go to Artona 3 to live with all your old friends from the lab. That's the plan. The door opened for him easily. Maybe locks just weren't much of a necessity when you lived in a place like this. He stepped into one of the mudrooms he'd seen on his last trip here. It looked completely unharmed. When he stopped moving, the preservation on Kibi dropped, and he crouched to let her slide off onto the ground. She stared around at the room in shock and then looked back at Alden. She said something rapidly in Artanen pointing from him to the room. He smiled at her. Sweet, right? From your perspective the trip was easy-peasy. One minute you're there, the next you're here. I'm jealous. She might have even thought he'd teleported them here. Home, he said proudly in Artanen, pointing at the walls around them. Me and you are safe now. Maybe it was a lie, but it was a lie they both needed. 44. Request for Insight
request for insight. Contract 3 to Contract Earth, requesting insight into survival chances for one avowed under your jurisdiction. Name, Samuel Alden Thorne. Last confirmed status. Teleport approved to Leafsong University, Artona 3, from Elepta Agricultural Community, Moon the Gund. Teleportation cycle initiated by Contract 3. Initiation by Contract the Gund unknown. Likely statuses. Death due to teleportation failure, 46.3%. Death due to ongoing corruption incident on Moon the Gund, 22.7%. Alive in need of rescue, 18.4%. Death due to physical injury, 6.1%. Other, 6.5%. Survival predictions. Based on avowed rank, talents, experience, and availability of resources at last known location, survival chances will drop below the 1% threshold in 270 of your hours. No special measures on behalf of this avowed are indicated. No special measures will be taken. Estimated time to arrival of capable rescue at last known location is 8 to 14 months. Likelihood of survival until rescue is 0.00003%. Is additional insight available? Contract Earth to Contract 3, additional insight available. Avowed Samuel Alden Thorne's survival likelihood in a The Gund class corrupted environment exceeds the average. For a new avowed assigned B rank, due to enhancements in place prior to acceptance of contract, nature of enhancements qualifies as private information and inherent advantage under clauses 4 and 102. Suggested adjustments to your predictions. Survival chances should drop below the 1% threshold in approximately 1,803 hours. Likelihood of survival after 8 months is 0.0007%. Adjustments acknowledged. Analysis completed. Inform next of kin of status. Assignment to be listed as supply transport location to remain unlisted. Avowed Samuel Alden Thorne. Official status. Missing on assignment, irretrievable due to teleportation failure. Status will be adjusted in 1803 Earth hours to. Missing on assignment, presumed dead due to teleportation failure. Death will be confirmed upon resolution of corruption incident on Moon the Gund. Avouds are gold to be distributed to next of kin at that time. Death compensation to be provided by Leafsong University at that time. 45. Start. Staying alive in a place that didn't want you to was an endless string of chores. For the first several days at the lab, Alden spent every waking moment trying to organize and figure out how to do completely basic things, like eat and bathe and sleep without having his brain run through by a demon bug. On day 10, he woke up inside the bedroom he'd made for himself. He checked the clock he'd stolen from the wall in the rec room and marked the time. It rolled over about every 26 hours, keeping time according to Mother Planet and Artona 3 standards. 
Alden was counting days and sleeping according to a human schedule to stay sane. Still alive, he said, his voice echoing. His bedroom was set up within a large vault in the main lab building. Alden thought it was probably a cage for some kind of extra-dangerous summons. It had white metal walls and a floor so coated in runes it made the summonarium on the Leafsong campus look plain. And the only way in or out was a door six feet thick that opened with a touch panel from the outside, which Alden couldn't use. He kept it open just far enough for himself to come and go, and he'd wedged it with so many metal bars and pipes that the only way it could shut on him was if Kibi finally had enough of his nonsense and decided to off him in his sleep. She left again, he thought, taking in the child-free room with frustration. Even after I explained to her why we ought to stay in here as much as we can stand, not a single bug had ever punched through the vault. Even though the lab was so much safer than the surrounding area, it was still slowly being riddled with damage. Signs of intrusion were everywhere if you knew how to look for it, and though he only saw a handful of the small demons buzzing around indoors each day, a handful wasn't nothing. He had to sleep. He couldn't watch Kibi while he slept. She was supposed to stay with him here in their creepy cozy vault asylum. He'd let her absolutely fill the place with toys and other odds and ends she'd brought in from all over the lab, hoping it would keep her entertained when they couldn't rest at the same time. But she still disappeared on him constantly. He rolled off the mattress he was using for a bed and dressed himself in clothes he'd found in storage in the room that had once been Joe's. The guy was tall for an artinan, and they were the only clothes that weren't too tight. Wizard pants and turtlenecks made up the bulk of Alden's outfits now. Joe had also left behind a single Hawaiian shirt that must have been a gift from one of his contractees. It was green with huge pink hibiscuses all over it. Alden had decided to save it for special occasions. There was a full bathroom with a shower in the main lab, and Alden followed the line he'd laid out on the floor in tape to get to it. The lab was magically booby-trapped. Maybe. Alden didn't know how the traps were triggered, but Kibby claimed she did. Either Joe didn't mind having kids running around while he was experimenting or in the time since he'd been gone. The assistants had decided it was fine to let her. On Alden's second day here, when he'd been dragging her around to catalogue every inch of the facility, she'd insisted this particular winding path was the way you had to get through the main lab. So down the tape went, and Alden followed it. He kind of hoped she was just messing with him. It was going to be one heck of a practical joke. If a few weeks from now he found out she just thought it was funny to watch him weave around random floor tiles. As he did every morning, he thanked the faucet for coming on and the toilet for flushing. His irrigation sticks were tucked safely in the vault, where he hoped he'd never ever need them. Kibi, he shouted. I'm awake. She might not have been around to hear him, or she might have been ignoring him. She'd probably appear soon, though. The little girl hated the vault, but she seemed to enjoy following Alden around and watching him do stuff. First, water. Every day, partially to make himself feel better, he added to his growing collection of bottled water. 
he'd found loads of storage containers all over the facility. Today, he selected some large glass jars with strong seals on the lids, and after washing them with a removable shower head over and over again in hopes that any undetectable chemical residue would be taken care of, he filled them to the top and hauled them into the vault. He set them beside all the other jars, bottles, and even a couple of small plastic barrels he'd filled so far. How long did water last in containers? Alden didn't know, but if it became necessary, he'd boil the heck out of it and hope for the best. Second, food. He'd squirreled away a couple of wheelbarrows full of dry goods in the vault, but that, too, was for emergency use. He headed across the compound, sneakers crunching on gravel as he made his way to the residential section of the perimeter building. He'd repaired the damaged soles of his shoes with something that looked and acted like a hot glue gun. He hadn't gotten it quite right, but the patch was holding up pretty well. How's the buzz today? He thought, listening hard. The drone of the demon bugs was quieter. It had been getting quieter for two or three days now. That had to be a good thing. He went to the main rec room where the assistants had once hosted him. The kitchen was there, and they had a well-stocked larder full of food. There were sacks of grain and beans, and there were pre-packed meals in gold foil pouches. Alden had moved a lot of it to the vault, but the place was still full. The huge fridge had been stuffed with fruits and vegetables from one of the greenhouses when he had first arrived, and he'd kept it supplied with the same varieties ever since. He took a notebook made of oddly slick paper from the counter and grabbed one of the oily-looking pencils that wrote on it well. He glanced at the last note he'd made. Day 9, dinner, ate a full serving of the green eggplant thing. Ate a trial serving of the pink rice. If dead tomorrow, be advised that pink rice is lethal to humans. Smiley face. He added a new line. Day 10, breakfast, still alive. Feel fine. Pink rice not super poisonous. Eggplant is officially okay. Eating larger serving of leftover pink rice. Adding a spiky strawberry. For science. Hope I see you at lunch. So far, the worst he'd had was an upset stomach. Humans and Artanans could consume most of the same foods, but not everything. Alden definitely remembered hearing that it was a very bad idea to eat shellfish on any of the triplanets. He'd been getting by with things he recognized as safe from his meals on the Leafsong campus. And though he was sick to death of the stuff, he was drinking a lot of wevy. They had so much of it packed into bags that fitted onto the dispenser in the kitchen, and he assumed he needed the calories. There was more than enough food at the lab to last him and Kibby for ages. He just had to make sure he survived taste-testing it all. He shoved a small serving of rice and some beans he'd already declared safe into the blue box that served as a microwave. Heat and sanitize, he said in Artanen. It had taken him a while to figure out what the word sanitize meant. When it came to using appliances, He'd learned by following the little girl around and repeating whatever actions she took and sounds she made. He still did that a lot. He pretended not to know that they were both calling the automatic launderer ugly butt, for no reason at all whenever they used it. Kibby, food. You eat before? Or no?
Alden assumed not. She wasn't really into feeding herself. She'd eat absolutely anything he prepared for her without complaint, though, so it had worked out so far. She liked marlek berries, and they still had some of those in the fridge. There was a jug of what looked and behaved like chunky liquefied egg and she'd called it something something for second meal when he'd asked. So he'd been scrambling that for her, too. He couldn't eat it himself, so it was better not to let it go to waste. He had no idea how to season it. He hoped it wasn't disgusting. She appeared as he was sitting down with a cup of wevy and his own bowl of probably not deadly rice and beans. She'd been crying. Her dark brown eyes were swollen and her short brown hair was tangled and sticking up at the back. It was a frequent occurrence. Alden didn't ask her about it. He'd tried a couple of times to offer comfort, but it seemed to make it worse for her. Breakfast, he said, pointing at the plate he'd made her. He'd arranged the berries into the logogram for a friend. Because he was a dork, and he didn't want his one and only companion to be mad at him for constantly trying to stick her in a vault. She ate the berries and the scrambled stuff together with her fingers. Not how Alden would have done it, but what did he know? Thank you. She always thanked him. You're welcome. Thank you for eating with me. What are you doing today? She got up and went to the sink before answering. Kibi rarely felt the need to answer a question quickly, even simple ones. It didn't seem to be deliberate rudeness on her part, and she never seemed offended that he'd asked. He hadn't noticed the habit with adult artinans, so maybe it was a kid thing, or a personality quirk. Watching, dash dot. A show? The appliances at the lab mostly ran on their own independent power sources. Magic, electricity, tiny hamsters on wheels, Alden didn't care how it worked. He just loved that it did. He was pretty sure it was the only reason they still had so much nice stuff to use. The big television in the main room had served them well for a few days before suffering from a demon strike. A few smaller ones throughout the residence had just died. Like they couldn't take the pressure of living in this world anymore, the cowards. But there were still a lot working. Everyone who lived here had enjoyed at least one personal device in their room. Alden didn't know yet if the shows you could watch on them were contained on the televisions themselves, or if they were receiving a signal from something. He thought it was at least partially the second, since he could pull up a much more high-quality-looking version of the chaos map he'd seen at Elepta. It didn't seem like something every individual device should be able to supply on its own. Maybe they were receiving input from sensors of some kind. Kibi didn't know, so Alden didn't know. They just watched shows together and appreciated the distraction. Kibi liked a category of entertainment that Alden had mentally classified as soap operas for children. They were really weird by human standards. The shows were clearly meant for kids since they each had a teacher explaining the moral lesson at the end of the episode, but some of them were dark. Actually, Alden had watched enough of them now to notice that a dark one was delivered exactly every five shows. Like sandwiching a really harsh life lesson in with the nice ones was the whole point. 
Little Kleepak learned about taking good care of his flower garden. Little Kleepak shared purple daisies with a pair of children he often saw going into the house of healing next door. Little Kleepak attended the funeral of his friends, ripped up his daisies, and got stuffed in the punishment closet by his parents. For what? Alden had wondered, while Kibi nodded as if to say, well, naturally. What else can you expect? The Dark Ones drove Alden crazy. He couldn't understand enough of the show or the following lessons to even begin figuring out what cultural thing they were trying to convey. Was Kleepak in trouble for destroying the daisies? Was he supposed to ignore his grief? Or grieve differently? Was it a social class thing? Were children not allowed at funerals? Or maybe the point of the show was that parents were sometimes nasty and abusive and you shouldn't trust them completely? Not a show, uh, Kibi told him now. That sounds good. I'll come, too. Alden would just watch it with her and find out what the word meant that way. Kibi led Alden back to one of the rooms she spent a lot of time in. It wasn't the one she'd shared with her little sister. He wasn't allowed in there. This one didn't have many personal affects, but he thought it might have been her father's. The bed was folded up into one wall, and a small table folded into the opposite. A pair of cushy chairs were arranged in front of the television from their last confusing soap opera session. While he waited for the girl to return, Alden made a mental list of the other things he wanted to do today. Go to the greenhouse the food came from and pick things that looked like they might be ripe. Avoid the other greenhouses, because they had hazmat suits by the doors, and Alden wouldn't be eating anything from those. Explore one of the outbuildings and catalog the contents better. Try to figure out where the sensor or sensors for the chaos weather map were so that they could be protected. Alden had some tablets in his vault, where he hoped they would be shielded from whatever damage was slowly taking out other things at the lab. He'd like to save whatever it was that gave him the weather report, too. Though the numbers of demons seemed to be decreasing, the red color was spreading wider with every passing day, just as then AR had said it would. After a couple of minutes, Kibi reappeared dragging a pair of cushions behind her. She gave Alden an annoyed look. Why didn't you? He looked around. What? Had he been assigned a chore he didn't know about? She stomped over to the chair she usually sat in and started shoving it away from the television. Move the chairs? Maybe that was what she'd said. He stood up and moved his own chair out of the way, too. Kibi pointed to one of the cushions, and he took it obediently. It was a heavy, stuffed leather pillow, square-shaped with logograms stitched around the edges in gold and silver thread. It looked like the ultra-luxury version of the chopped-up yoga mats they used in word chain class at the consulate. Are we saying word chains? Kibi paused. No. Unless you need to do it for underscore 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 underscore. Let's do what you want. He said that a lot. It gave him an excuse to let her lead without looking completely clueless all the time. He hoped. Kibi set her cushion down and started taking off her socks. Alden blinked. Were they doing school of some kind? An educational show? 
That was usually what Barefoot meant with Artanans in his experience. He dropped his cushion beside hers and hurriedly unlaced his own shoes. When they were done, Kibi walked over to the panel that controlled the lighting and spent over a minute dimming it until it was at some precise level. That satisfied her. Then she disappeared again and returned with what looked like a polished wooden chopstick. She used it to measure the distance between her cushion and Alden's. Wow, it's got to be school. We're being so serious about the layout. Then she pulled a round silver disc from her pocket. Alden was startled when she used it to set the end of the measuring stick on fire. She let it burn and looked at Alden expectantly. He smiled at her. I have no idea what you want. Let's have a good education time, he suggested. She looked surprised, so that probably wasn't the right thing to say. But she considered it for a while, then nodded at him and blew out the stick. Kibi walked over to the television and turned it on. She had to stand on her tiptoes to reach some parts of the screen, but she didn't like it when Alden did it for her. She brought up a program he hadn't seen before. Well, good. Kleepak was starting to stress me out. An Artanan woman in wizard's garb stood in a dimly lit room that was mostly multicolored wood and large shuttered windows. Barefoot children who looked at least a couple years younger than Kibi were filing in one after the other with cushions under their arms. They all did the thing with the polished measuring stick while the adult watched them patiently, and then they set their sticks on fire and recited something that was several sentences long while they faced one of their neighbors. Kibi glanced over her shoulder at Alden. Um, I'll say it better next time. Then everyone sat on their cushion and Kibi rushed over to hers. She knelt on it and Alden joined her. He hoped she didn't mind him sitting cross-legged. Kneeling for a long time didn't seem that comfortable. He still wasn't sure what was going on in the video. His best guess was Wizard Kindergarten, but it wasn't what he would have imagined. They spent the first 20 minutes stretching their fingers in specific ways while the screen showed close-ups of small Artanan hands, and the teacher offered advice in a placid tone that would have put Alden straight to sleep if he wasn't so busy trying to decipher what the heck she was talking about. There were way too many words for fingers. Was she naming specific muscles or saying something completely unrelated? After finger exercises, there were mouth exercises, breathing exercises, and an exercise that Alden was sure was supposed to be some kind of mental thing. Since he couldn't understand what was being said, it just looked like a bunch of little kids drooping on their cushions. Kibi drooped right along with them. Alden was bored. And then, fifteen whole minutes after the drooping had started, just when he was certain this was all something completely incomprehensible that didn't apply to him, Kibi gave him a friendly pat. On the existence. Which was not a place he'd known could be patted by another person. So he considered it a real achievement that he didn't shriek and fling himself across the room. Instead, he froze processing the feeling in the same way he'd spent the past ten days processing a few other new feelings that came along with living in Demonville. Lacking any actual names for them, he was calling his new states of being a centered, askew, and assertive.
Centered was for how he normally went about life. He couldn't even detect it. As far as he knew, it was just the absence of the other feelings. Askew was what happened when he got smacked by a demon bug, which hadn't occurred in two whole days, major success. And assertive was the feeling he'd had upon activating Azure Rabbit by himself for the first time. A sense that he was actively expanding his personal space. He'd begun to notice it now when he was using his skill, too. He had two theories about why he was aware of what it felt like to assert his authority when he hadn't been before. The first was that the system had been stopping him from feeling it somehow, either by taking some of the load off with all the various little conveniences it provided, or actively altering the way he felt things to make them less confusing to a human. The second one was that humans really couldn't feel authority at all under usual conditions, and he was only beginning to feel his own assertive state now because he was constantly pressing against something he'd never had to deal with before, like the difference between breathing normally and breathing with a thick cloth over your nose. The chaos was everywhere. He knew it. All day yesterday, he'd been asked you whenever his skill wasn't active. He could only relax in the vault. It was why he'd had yet another talk with Kibi about the importance of spending time in the unpleasant place. Pat, pat, pat. Alden shook his head and tried to focus. Well, here's a new one to add to the list. Centered, ask you, assertive, and poked, petted, wizardy fist bump. It was kind of cute. He was sure he was supposed to friendly pat back, but he didn't have a clue how. He couldn't even activate his skill without breaking her concentration and asking her to hand him something. He'd been wearing a string around his neck as his preferred carried item lately, but he always lost entrustment on it when he went to sleep. Alden drooped on his cushion like the little kids. Maybe slouchy posture helped? He closed his eyes and tried to imagine himself patting back. It was a failure, but maybe not a complete one. When Alden gave up on trying to do something and instead focused intently on just the sensation of Kibi's magical fist bump, he gradually became aware of his own power as he had a few times before. It's here, around me, my own little patch of authority keeping me here and keeping me myself. It's been shaped by the system so that I can use my skill, but it's still mine. Joe said that there was always a portion of it unbound. I guess I should be able to do things with it, right? Surely a little friendly pat? The lesson ended before he could get there. Well, that was all right. Sorry, Alden said when Kibby gave him a disappointed look. I can practice. Why not? He had plenty of free hours ahead of him and it was about time for him to figure out how to spend the next weeks of his life now that he had started to get a handle on surviving. After the magic class, they spent a few hours watching Artin and children learn important life skills and suffer hardship. Kibi seemed pleased, and Alden sat beside her, making a list in his notebook of all the things he wanted to do if he didn't die from eating the spiky strawberry. He had to assume he had a future, one back on Earth, where he would maybe one day attend school, get a job, play video games, live on Anisadora.
He hadn't really dug too deeply into his feelings about certain things yet, but maybe it was necessary. Bo and Jeremy would have known something was wrong the first time he skipped their usual phone call. He didn't think Joe could entirely hide his absence from Leafsong, so the university would have known by the next day, too. Alden wasn't officially off on a super-secret mission. He was a rabbit, and it was supposedly a berry collection quest that had ended in disaster. It wasn't the kind of thing that the Artinans would keep under wraps for any reason he could imagine. He wouldn't just vanish with no word like Hannah had. He would be officially declared something. Dead, missing, lost cause. He wasn't sure which because he wasn't sure what anyone else might know about his current predicament. But they would tell his aunt. If they declared him dead, legal stuff would happen. If they declared him missing, Connie would definitely contact someone from Anisidora, probably Ms. Zhao or Mr. Thomas, and try to get them to find out what had happened to him. It most likely wasn't something they could do, but Alden's aunt wouldn't believe that, and she'd be desperate. In the same situation, he would have been, too. Sorry, Aunt Connie. Sorry, guys. Dead or missing, either way, he'd be a known avowed when he made it back home. So the secret unregistered route was completely off the table now. He'd have to go fully on the run if he didn't want to live on the island. I don't think I had any doubts about registering. But I feel like someone took a choice away from me anyway. It's stupid. Well, life on Anisidora would be his starting point. He could still go from there in a ton of different directions. Battlefield support like he'd always dreamed wasn't off the table. It seemed like a more extreme decision than it had before, though. Alden had a lot more experience with being an avowed dealing with a crisis now. It was so hard. He was terrified literally all the time that he was going to screw up. If Kibby died, his fault. If he died and she was left to suffer here alone, his fault. The first time she'd abandoned him in the vault, he'd used the privacy to break down and sob until he almost couldn't breathe. And only then had he gone to find her. That didn't seem like very adult behavior. Never mind superhero behavior. Maybe I'm not cut out for this after all. If he'd had training of some kind, would that have made a difference? If he'd had partners? A team? Would he have helped them the way he'd always envisioned or would he just lean on them? He didn't know anymore. What he did know for sure was that weird, awful shit could happen to you as an avowed. You could choose a peaceful life for yourself. And you'd probably get it unless everything Alden knew about living on the island was a conspiracy. But maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you'd randomly get summoned to a place like this. Even if I'm not hero material, I still want to be able to survive. So he would learn all the things he could learn in this situation. Language. His trait. His skill. Maybe even magic if Kibi had more of the kindergarten lessons. How will I even know I'm gaining authority and leveling the skill if I don't have the system? Not sure. Try it anyway. What are you doing? Kibi asked as Alden stood up from his seat and stretched. He took off his string necklace and handed it to her. Familiar with the ritual, she handed it right back. His skill activated. Practicing, he said. Practicing my magic. And running for my health.
Exercise, he confirmed, assuming that was what it was. Can I ask you for a gift, Kibi? She stared at him for a long time and then nodded. It's not that serious. I just don't know how to say favor. Will you help me learn to talk better? When I say something bad, will you help me say it better? You're smart, so you know what I want to say a lot. Give me help when I talk bad. You want to say badly, said Kibi promptly. Or, or. Badly, Alden repeated. Awesome. Adverbs. Thank you. Can I watch the exercise? Yes, it's not secret. You don't secret. Is better. It's not private? That's good, she said seriously. You sound less. I'm happy, said Alden, wondering what he sounded less of. Thank you for teaching me. It was a start. 46. Life. What is this ugly thing? Kibi asked, wrinkling her nose at the results of an entire morning's work in the kitchen. Kibi stinks. She's mean mean, Alden said brightly, jabbing a few of the sacred burning chopsticks into the top of his concoction. You stink. Humans stink the most. Go climb in the launderer and wash yourself. Alden laughed. Insults were coming along nicely. Kibi really liked being friendly mean. Dash. Sometimes she got a little too into it though. This is my special birthday meal, he said. He didn't know cake yet, and anyway, it was more like a seven-layer dip made with colorful vegetable mash. Yum. Delicious. It's a human custom. Why are you putting my promise sticks in it? For beauty. You're dumb. Promise sticks aren't, dash. They're important. Alden paused. Are you feeling bothered? Seriously? Seriously was a good word. Kibi would stop joking around to answer him thoughtfully whenever he used it. No, it's fine. For your birthday. Your shirt is. Alden held out his arms and spun so that she could admire the garish Hawaiian shirt. Oh, she really does like it, he realized, examining her expression. That must have been a compliment then. Today we eat on the top of the building. Roof, she reminded him. She'd shown him the way up there about a week ago. They'd both agreed that it was a bad place and a good place. It was good because the lab lacked windows, and the only way to see the surrounding landscape and not feel a little claustrophobic was from the rooftop. And it was bad because the landscape didn't look like it once had. The endless sea of grass was all wilted, rotted, or just plain missing. It smelled funky. And in the distance, visible through a set of very cool binoculars Alden had found, he'd spied some kind of trail through what was left of the grass. Like something about the size of the armored car had ambled drunkenly around out there. It was a pretty chilling idea. He'd asked Kibby about it, and she'd said one of the three words she liked to use for the demon bugs. So, yeah, the roof was good and bad. That had been a complicated conversation to navigate. But Kibby really enjoyed her new role as Alden's language tutor. Managing his word choices pleased her. She had extremely bossy tendencies for someone who was the equivalent of eight years old by human standards. Artinens aged a little more slowly. 
Every day Kibi gave Alden brain-breaking tests by taking him around the lab and pointing at things, demanding he come up with the name. In addition to the three words specifically for the bugs, she'd made him learn six for what he thought of as simply chaos. He'd memorized them, but he wasn't sure what the nuances were yet. When the cake was finished, they headed up to the wide flat roof where Alden had already set up the party spot. Surprise, he shouted, gesturing to the two reclining chairs, the ball-shaped lamp, and the table he'd hauled up while she was sleeping yesterday afternoon. He'd called it strength training and counted it as his workout for the day. A pitcher of the same blue tea Joe had served him on his last evening at Leafsong was on the table along with cups. Kibi examined it all thoroughly. Why are we eating on the roof? It's... Do humans have to do it for their birthdays? Alden resisted the urge to make up some insane tradition on the spot. No, I just thought it is happy to eat outside while we can. There aren't many demons now, and night is coming. They'd been living in the lab for 28 days. By his math, give or take a few hours he'd lost track of on the first day, he was now 16. And in a few Alden days the real the Gun day would end, and a very long night would come. The light shining through the cloud cover seemed like it was already growing dimmer. He was a little hung up on it. Kibi, who'd lived here her whole life, thought it was strange that he was nervous about it. There are lots of everywhere, she said, pointing at the tall light poles on the grounds of the complex. Some of them will be broken, but not all of them. You'll keep me safe, Alden said. No. You will. Inside, you're all friendly. You are the avowed. And you're old. You have to keep me safe. Embarrassed. Alden held out his mushy veggie cake. Make fire for my promise sticks, he demanded. She groaned and stomped like it was a terrible imposition. But she pulled her little lighter disc out of her pocket and lit the makeshift candles. Alden set it on the table and sat beside it in his recliner. Now, I'm going to say lots of words together for beauty, he announced. It's part of the birthday custom. Say lots of words together for beauty? Kibi asked in a fascinated voice. Alden cleared his throat and belted out the happy birthday song. He was not a gifted singer. Kibi looked stunned and horrified. But since he'd said it was a custom, she didn't stop him or cover her ears. That is, a nice custom, she said when he was done. You don't call it saying lots of words together for beauty. You mean, I think? Singing? Maybe, she said doubtfully. Now what? Alden leaned over and blew out all of his sticks. Oh, I understand, Kibi said confidently, whipping out her lighter again. Alden watched her light them all, and then she blew on them, too. Was that right? she asked. Perfect. He pulled one of the sticks out and licked some mushroomy-tasting paste off the bottom. Now we eat it. After the meal, Alden attempted birthday parkour around the grounds of the laboratory. When Kibi had asked to watch him exercise after their first baby magic lesson, He'd tried to turn the simple laps around the facility he'd initially planned into something more entertaining for her. It was a bit of a failure, but with his trait active it was at least a high-energy one. He'd decided to keep at it. 
plain old running wasn't as much fun as launching himself with unnecessary force off of expensive-looking equipment and buildings that belonged to a corporation that was indirectly responsible for his presence here. He wouldn't call himself good at it, but he was definitely improving, even when he didn't wear the coat. Usually he didn't. It was in the vault, saving whatever magical oomph it had left for whenever he might really need it. He used the heck out of Joe's ring, though. Alden's ring, he decided, letting it do the gripping for him for a split second as he hung from the edge of one of the huge pentagonal satellite dishes. Happy birthday to me. If Joe asks for it back, I'll look him dead in the eye and say I lost it on the demon moon he sent me to. He didn't really blame Joe. It wasn't like Alden hadn't known something bad could happen here. But he still felt like he could have been a little more thoroughly informed. About everything. And if Joe had gotten him out of the party? Don't go there. It always pisses you off. If he hadn't gone to that stupid party, if Manon hadn't been trying to stick it to BTI cool, then Kibby's sister and her father and the scientist in the green lab coat would all be alive. And Alden and Kibby wouldn't be here. Only then A.R. and the woman in coveralls would have died. Not like Manon knew. Not like anyone did. It wasn't on purpose. But he was looking forward to ratting his fellow rabbit out to the sways when he got back home a lot more than he had been. He ran at one of the curved walls of the perimeter building and tried to do that thing some people could do. A proper run-up, amplified by his trait. He ate gravel. He always did. He heard Bo's voice in his head, telling him not to choose a trait that was tied to a fundamentally alien concept he didn't understand. It will suddenly be not fucking ground anymore because it's overcrafted or the altitude is six inches too high. Whatever the shiny walls of the building were made of was definitely not ground. Alden was going to work it out, though either by mastering the art of his final kickoff or reconceptualizing the alien definition of ground. That seemed to be built into his trait, if that was even a trick that applied in this situation. It really might not be. He'd asked Kibby about it. She seemed to think it was obvious that ground could never be something that wasn't native to the planet you were standing on. The building material for the exterior of the residence apparently wasn't. And if you just wanted to talk in a general way about the substance beneath your feet, you used floor instead. It was a great insight actually, if Alden could just get a handle on the reason for it. Something about being closely connected to the native soil? He was honestly surprised his own shoes didn't prevent him from receiving the traits benefits here on Moon the Gund. Was footwear just automatically considered part of its owner? Was the power like a coating that extended far enough to encompass the soles of his shoes? Ground is weird. And interesting. Inconvenient, too. He'd get the hang of it in one way or another and make Bo eat his words. At least Moon the Gund wasn't overly warm. He could conduct his workout sessions without getting heat stroke. Also, he had a cheerleader slash drill sergeant most of the time. Climb up the side of the facility. Kibby yelled enthusiastically from her recliner on the roof. Alden knew which of the little shed-like buildings she meant, though its name had so far escaped definition.
It turns something into something else, according to the girl. So maybe it was transformation? Or conversion? Alden obliged her by brushing himself off and running at the shed. Kick off the gravel like this, not too much force, grab the lip of the roof. He'd totally launched himself into the wall the last time he tried this. But today he managed it just a little awkwardly. Also, the concretey-looking roof here was ground, so that was fun. He could leap off of it with enough force to land on top of the neighboring shed. Kibi thumped her feet against her chair and applauded. Magic class happened in the vault now. Alden had finally found something his tiny roomie wanted badly enough to persuade her to spend significant amounts of time there. The authority control exercise that resulted in the existential fist bump was very important to her. So important that she was willing to explain it in exhaustive detail when she realized Alden was open to the idea of practicing with her. Apparently she'd assumed he wouldn't be at first. Because he was a great and awesome avowed, and she imagined him to be well beyond this point in his education. He found this assumption almost as mind-blowing as she found his total lack of talent for the fist bump. But you can do things with your authority, she kept insisting. You have to understand. I don't understand things. I only do things. And I can only do them at all because of the contract. Why? I don't know. Why don't you know? Because humans are different than Artanans. Avowed are different than wizards. We don't feel our authority. So we don't have to learn magic to do our skills. She looked baffled. He was baffled. There was a lot of mutual ignorance going on. Maybe it would have been different if Kibi had had a normal magical education. Apparently she was behind where she should have been, which was why the children on her video class looked a few years younger than her. Alden had pieced together enough to understand that Joe had advised her father not to send her off for formal training when she was a toddler. He thought she shouldn't pursue wizardry because she was ungifted. It wasn't easy to read between the lines. But it sounded like Joe and Kibby's father both believed that life as a bottom-rung member of the wizard class was harder than life, as a highly educated and important member of the non-wizard class. But a while back, Kibby had decided that she wasn't going to accept that, and she'd refused to learn calculus until she was allowed to study magic, too. Joe had caved, had a teacher he knew record the little wizard lessons for her, and bought her the cushions. Two of them. Because you were supposed to have at least one partner for the fist bump. Distinguished Master Roden gave me eight lessons, Kibi said seriously. It was a relationship dynamic Alden hadn't expected. He was curious about Joe's reasoning, and he wanted to ask Kibi if maybe she was a genius in the traditional, non-magical sense of the word, since she'd been learning advanced mathematics at age seven, but he didn't want to out himself as someone who could not have done that. If she realized she was smarter than him at magic and math, how was he ever going to persuade her to brush her hair and chew her tooth gum and sleep in the vault so she wouldn't be constantly irradiated by chaos? Today you will be better at this, Kibi announced. 
She was carefully measuring the distance between their cushions with the promised stick while Alden cleared some of her toys away. Because it is your birthday. I'll try, Alden said. As always. He wondered if she thought birthdays actually had the power to transform humans into natural mages, or if she was attempting psychology on him. They'd done the beginner's exercise at least once a day, and more often twice, for the past eighteen days. Alden would have given up on it by now if he wasn't using it as a bribe, but Kibi wasn't a quitter. She wanted a partner like the children on television, and if Alden was willing, she was going to keep patting at him until he finally figured it out. She lit a promise stick that still had birthday veggie residue on it, and they said the special pledge. Alden had memorized it properly after a few repetitions, and it made him glad that the little girl got such an obvious thrill out of hearing it said to her. They promised to be respectful to each other during their lesson and patient with each other. They promised to honor the sacrifice of their teacher's time by bringing there to bear. Alden was pretty sure that word he hadn't gotten the hang of was something like acuity, but he hadn't committed to defining it that way yet. And they ended by saying, I promise I will give my dash to you, my partner. Alden was still working on that word, too. He thought it was too much of a coincidence for it to really be what he'd been privately thinking of it as in his head, sincere best. You're smiling, Kibby said as she knelt on her cushion. It's a, because you're going to do better today. Oh, she's definitely trying to psych me up. Maybe I will. He didn't. And he didn't the next day either, or the one after that. But finally, shortly after the first long night had fallen on them in truth, Kibi reached out with a determined pat-pat-pat. And a part of Alden that had been straining against the encroaching chaos for weeks and feeling its own presence for the first time ever, a part of him that had never known it could move as it pleased, reached out toward the small, kind existence that had been trying to get its attention for so long. And it patted back. 47. Thunder Lettuce On his hundredth day on Moon the Gund, Alden crossed the compound, rubbing his arms to ward off the cold even though he was wearing two turtlenecks on top of each other. The lab was enduring its second long night since he'd arrived, and though he was getting used to it, it was still hard to resist staring up at the sky. There were never any stars, and he couldn't see the clouds through the glare of the facility's powerful lights. The buzz was long since gone, and Moon the Gund was still and quiet again. In the dark periods, Alden felt their isolation from the rest of the universe more keenly. It was only him and Kibi and these few buildings now. Everything else was blackness and silence. He'd left his little partner sleeping back at the vault. He could feel her there. It was a relatively new ability. A couple of weeks ago, Alden had lost track of her. He'd searched and searched, calling her name, and growing increasingly worried until he suddenly realized he just knew what direction she was in. At first, it was almost the same as the feeling he had during their magic lessons, a weight in her direction, like the universe leaned ever so slightly toward her. But as he'd become aware of how to access the sense of her, it had gotten sharper and clearer rapidly. 
Little effort was involved now that he'd figured out the trick. Because it's something that's pre-built into the skill, he thought. This was what the system had called targeting. He'd just learned how to access it in a new way. Kibi was the one who could entrust him with things. Alden no longer needed the light halo or the direction indicator to know it. He was positive he could untarget and retarget her, too, now. But he hadn't tried. Some things were too dangerous to experiment with. He entered the greenhouse and paused for a moment to appreciate the warmth and the artificial sunlight, blazing down from the glass panels overhead. Well, blazing from most of them. Some of them were dead. Some of everything was dead. That was how it worked around here. Alden walked between the hydroponic tables, examining the plants. The greenhouse was mostly automated. During the first couple of months, a task list had appeared on the wall every other day or so for things that required attention. Kibi would read it to Alden, and when she didn't already know how to complete a chore, they'd figured it out together. The list had died. Fortunately, Alden had the routine down well enough to muddle through without it by the time it did. Today, the greenhouse had provided a new set of germination trays already loaded with seeds in little gel cups. Alden took it from the cabinet it had appeared in and slotted it into an empty space on one of the hydro tables. Hang in there, dude, he said to it. It's a rough world. The last few trays he'd slotted in were largely failures. Most of the seeds didn't sprout. A few produced anemic little plants that looked like they'd never turn into anything worth eating. And a far smaller number were growing like weeds. One of the first trays he'd placed had made a whole lot of nothing and a few gargantuan heads of what Alden was calling thunder lettuce. The name made Kibi groan like she was in pain every time he said it. Alden and the little girl had enjoyed a long discussion about eating thunder lettuce and about the many other plants in the greenhouse that were still alive but no longer looking quite like they were meant to. Conclusion, if the trial servings tasted yummy and didn't make you sick, eat it. It wasn't like the corruption couldn't get at all the other food they ate anyway. It just seemed to morph the living things at the lab more quickly and obviously than it did the non-living ones. Even the vault was only offering minor protection since the door had to be left open. As Alden grew more and more aware of his own power, he also became increasingly sensitive to the perpetual assault of existing in this place. The network of power he had sometimes imagined around himself during teleports, or that one overwhelming meeting with the primary, was still there. But it was like it was being sandblasted. The chaos pressed in endlessly. Alden asserted himself endlessly. The process had become automatic, but it was never ignorable. Even when he was not deliberately flexing his authority or using his skill, he was aware of it now. A strange sensation, like he was always tensing in expectation of a sharp poke. Asserting my authority. Asserting my right to be here and be me. I'm getting much better at it. He could tell he was. He could now control the strength of the flex if he chose. Sometimes, a grim and weary whisper in his mind pointed out that he could also choose to stop. Not often, but often enough to worry him. Today he was fine. 
He stole some dark green leaves the size of pillowcases from Thunder Lettuce for the garlicky one. Stir-fry for breakfast sounded good. Kibby liked it when he cooked. She didn't care what it tasted like. She just wanted someone to give her food on a plate at the table. Like she wanted him to offer to brush her hair and tell her to chew her tooth gum. It had taken Alden too long to realize it. She was a capable kid. If she didn't do something obvious for herself, it was because she really wanted him to do it for her. Can't fix her trauma. Can't fix the moon. Can fix breakfast. And do a decent French braid. At least it was something. That afternoon, they watched television. They watched a lot of television. Hours and hours of it every day in the vault. It was too easy to just stare at the screens and enjoy the sight and sound of other people living normal lives. Well, normal for Artinans. Alden was a little concerned about the amount of alien content he was absorbing. The dark episodes in the soap operas were starting to make sense. Kleepak shouldn't have killed the daisies. To disrespect life in the wake of death was the same as spitting on his friend's graves. His parents were still assholes, though. They could have explained it instead of throwing their kid in the punishment closet. It was so he could feel the darkness of death, said Kibi, and come to a greater knowledge of what he'd done wrong. Deep, said Alden, nodding in understanding. You mean profound. Profound. Language was coming along fantastically. This was a next-level immersion experience. Desperately wanting and needing to communicate complex ideas all the time, having a stickler of a roommate who loved correcting you, the total and complete absence of your native tongue. Alden had caught himself thinking in Artanen several times recently. A few more months and he'd start making a serious attempt at the writing system. There has to be some kind of official Artanen language proficiency exam on Anisadora, right? He was going to find it, take it, and obliterate it. He munched on a bowl of popped beans, not at all like popcorn, way too crunchy, and watched the end of a nature show about seasonal swarms of giant crabs on Artona Eye. Kibi jumped up at the end of it and raced over to the television to select a new show. Hey, do you think if you start a new show fast I'm going to forget our deal? Alden said, flicking a popped bean at her. She pouted. I don't want to talk about crabs. The deal isn't that we have to talk about crabs. We just have to talk about something in between shows. So that we don't just sit here watching the pretty colors on the screen all day while our brains rot. Decay. Not rot. Rot is too dirty. It's like what the chaos is doing to the plants in the greenhouse. It's not something you should say about brains. Hmm, interesting. Thank you for correcting my course. Kibby beamed. He made sure to only throw that particular phrase at her a couple of times a day. It was very respectful and usually reserved for teachers. She got really big head if he overdid it. What do we talk about instead of crabs, she asked, trotting back over to sit on the edge of her mattress. She no longer complained about sleeping here. It had been a long time since that was a source of disagreement between them. Can I ask you about the first again? We talked about that twice, she reminded him. 
I don't know what you mean. I know a lot more words now. He is an important Artanen man. A very important one. And he's powerful. I could feel it. Powerful how? Powerful magic. I could feel it like I can feel yours during partnered authority exercises. But back then, I couldn't usually do things like that at all. I couldn't know things like that about wizards. But with him I could. You mean he had high authority? Presence. Extremely high. He must be a very strong wizard. And he has a, a special name, an honor name. That means something like first. Honor name, she considered the phrase. A uh, dash. Like distinguished master? Maybe he was the leader of the school where you worked? Yes, a title. But he didn't work for the school. Are you sure, she said doubtfully, because you get confused a lot. Mean mean, he said, throwing another bean at her. Understanding different planets is hard, but I'm sure. He was there with his sister. They both had special clothes. He described the primary's outfit, the shorter sleeves, the patterns done in metal studs. And all of a sudden, Kibby made a sound that Alden associated with hardcore fangirls at pop concerts. Ah, you met. Did you say the first? Oh, oh. You felt his authority. Why? What did he say to you? And his sister? Which sister was it? She squealed and ran at him, climbing into his lap, which was not something she usually did. Like she was trying to get closer to him so that she could absorb the story through direct contact. He's dash. It was rare these days for her to use so many words in a row that he didn't have a clue about. Ah, uh, slower, he said, intimidated by the fact that she was nearly pressing their noses together while she fired off questions. By the time Kibby had managed to calm down and start using words he could understand, Alden ended up being more uncertain about who the primary was rather than less. According to Kibby, he was the best. The best at what? Everything. Alden could practically see little hearts floating in the air over her brown hair. Yes, I understand you're excited, but maybe you could explain it more easily? For a human? There are people who can't do magic, she said. Then there are people who are learning magic. Then there are lowly wizards. Then there are... The power rankings went on for a while. Artanans were very into categorizing their wizards by ability. Then there are wizards who make sacred promises to grow their power stronger and use it to protect the triplanets from chaos and demons and harm. Alden frowned. Had Kibi just jumped from power ranking to moral ranking? He kept listening in case he'd misunderstood, but it sounded like she had. Like, there were super 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 wizards, and then bam, noble fighting wizards. Can I ask a question, he interrupted. Do only the most powerful wizards become primaries? There's only one primary. He is the most powerful. Then there is a, and a, and then his sister Alice Art H. Was she the one you met? And then, and then? Are the titles numbers, he asked. They're in order. So like numbers anyway. That would explain the English translation the system had given him. Primary, secondary, tertiary, etc. 
maybe it was part of the normal power ranking system. But once you hit a certain level of wizardry, you were just expected to join the Chaos Fighting Group? I don't know what his sister's name was, he said. And I still don't understand. It sounded like when you were putting the wizards in order, you maybe changed it. From powerful wizards to brave wizards? Is that right or wrong? Yes, brave is more important than strong. Wow, that was not the answer Alden had been expecting. Does everyone think the same? Or just some people? She glared at him. Everyone knows are better than regular wizards. I'm missing something. I met the primary's son, Stuart H. He wanted to be a warrior for the mother planet. Not just a warrior. So it was the word the system had been translating as knight. A knight. A knight is a kind of wizard that is better than a normal wizard? Kibi nodded. But are they always stronger? Could Whirly Roden win in a fight with a knight? She looked appalled. Distinguished Master Roden would not fight a knight. But if he did, he would not. His head would be removed. So the knight would definitely win? She huffed. That doesn't matter. His head would be removed for fighting the knight even if he won. Especially if he won and hurt the knight. He'd be executed? Well, okay then. Maybe the knights were even more like royalty than he'd suspected when he first heard about Stuart's dad. Alden hoped Jelnor hadn't been beheaded for dueling Stuart. Maybe official duels were different than fights. And the guy was only a wannabe knight at this point, so surely it didn't count. Are the knights all family to each other, he asked, still trying to slot them in as some kind of obscure magical royalty. Is that part of what makes them knights? Of course not. That would be dumb. I don't understand, Alden moaned. I told you. You get confused. She kept rattling on about the primary, and Alden only got more confused. Kibi made it sound like the man's role in Artanen society was a cross between a nuclear warhead and the Pope. The two ideas did not mesh. He began to wonder if she just had such a huge crush on knights that it was preventing her from giving him an unbiased answer. Wait, wait, he said. One more time. All knights are better than all regular wizards, even if they're not always stronger. Because they promise to protect the triplanets from danger. Is that right? That's right, said Kibi. Okay. Now they were getting somewhere. Why doesn't everyone make the promise then? Kibi made the double hand gesture she liked to use for a shrug. Then she added, they're not allowed to break the promise. And I think they have to be special somehow. Maybe it's important to be stronger than normal wizards, too, even if they don't have to be the very strongest. Because I never heard about a weak knight. She paused. I asked distinguished Master Roden if I could be a knight one day, after I saw one on a video. What did he say? He said to ask him the same question after I got older and finally learned some magic. He said it was a terrible life for crazy wizards and idiots. Joe, who'd spent years living here on Moon the Goon by choice, thought other wizards were crazy. Change of subject, Alden said. Then we can watch another show.
I've wanted to ask you before, and since we're talking about magic and culture, how do avowed work with everything else? Kibi blinked. Don't you get assignments and complete them? No, sorry. I didn't mean to say work. I meant, what do Artinans think about avowed? What did you think when you first saw me? He had Joe's opinion about the views most wizards had, but he'd never quite figured out what Kibi and the assistants thought of him. I thought, a human. Probably it is a man-human. Distinguished Master Roden might have sent it. Or Yipalk might have sent it. I wonder if it's going to do magic. I hope it's going to help us. I hope it's not going to hurt us. So it was that simple and obvious then. He didn't know why he was thinking it would have been anything more complicated. What else would someone think when a potentially powerful alien walked up to their front door? Kibi smiled at him. I can't believe you met the primary. I can't believe you met a knight at all. I have never seen one in real life. Tell me what he said to you again. He said I was amazing. Liar. He said I was the best human he'd ever met, and I should be the primary. Liar, liar. We held hands. Kibi looked like she wanted to bite him. 48. The Machine. Dawn came. The red blob continued to spread across the map of Moon the Gund. Alden and Kibi stayed alive. Instructor Gwenlore taught the class full of wizard tots magic, and Alden and Kibi studied with them. In the beginning, the first thing you had to learn was how to move your authority deliberately and with control. To do that, you had to feel it. That was the point of the beginner exercise, and it was why you were supposed to have a partner to poke at you. It came naturally to the Artanen wizard class. Alden didn't think he ever would have figured it out if he hadn't been trapped in a chaos sandblaster. Being poked from every direction with no means of escape while also being highly motivated to actually try for Kibi's sake. But he had figured it out. He'd obtained the supposedly unobtainable sixth sense, and he'd learned how to use it. Then, finally, the lessons moved on to actual spell casting, and it wasn't that hard. Well, it was. But it was hard in ways that had a lot more to do with basic physical and mental limitations than with his newfound sense for and control over his authority. Artanans could think two thoughts at once. Literally. Two completely separate conscious mental processes. When they wanted to, they could work a math problem with one eyeball and read a book with another. They weren't just good at multitasking, as Joe had once said, they were the gods of it. Which was so unfair that Alden had to complain about it aloud every now and then. Facts are facts, Kibby intoned, looking at him with one eye while the other was fixed on the TV. They're not required to be fair. Ugh. You are so, what's a friendly mean word that says you are too proud of yourself? Smug, Kibby said smugly. You're that, said Alden, slouching on his learning cushion. Slouching was acceptable. Sitting on your butt was not. He knelt on it properly now like a respectful student. You're moving forward faster than me, Kibi said. And they're my lessons. That's what isn't fair. Kibi was very proud that she even had lessons. It was pretty uncommon for a child to be taught magic long distance. 
Most teachers, especially good teachers like instructor Gwen Lore, found anything but in-person instruction insulting. They didn't allow themselves to be recorded. I'm only faster because I'm older. And I'm an avowed. She smiled and nodded determinately. Alden was lying. Kibby knew he was lying. But Artinans considered kind lies to children to be an act of love. It was grown-up manners he'd learned from one of the soaps. Not exactly a foreign concept for a human, though the Artinans took it way farther than he ever would have on his own. If Kibi was expecting a loving lie, and he didn't give it to her, it really hurt her feelings. On multiple levels, it was like in addition to forcing her to have the information she didn't want. He was telling her that he didn't care enough about her to protect her. He'd accidentally made her cry several times before he'd finally watched the right show and realized his mistake. The truth was that Alden was pretty sure he was not better at magic because he was older. And due to some recent realizations, he was positive it wasn't because he was an avowed. It was a strange thing to think, but he was growing fairly certain that he was just naturally more talented at authority control than Kibi. He was careful not to ask about it. Since it was a painful subject for a girl who was pursuing wizardry so doggedly despite some sort of disadvantage. But the more they partnered up and worked on manipulating their power together, the more he could tell. Authority was more than just strong or weak. There were multiple other elements involved in turning it from something you had into something you used to enact magic. On the world around you, Kibi seemed to have power, but it was like it didn't want to move for her. She had the Artanen gift that had allowed her to know her authority and use it in the first place, but now that Alden had found his, too, he was outpacing her. Not that it means I'm particularly good in comparison to other small Artanen children, though, he thought as he watched the kindergartners on the screen. He couldn't perform a huge percentage of even the most basic spells and he would probably never be able to. Artanans sure liked their magic ingredients and toys and tools and chants. Things instructor Gwenlore said carried them through the maze of reality to a new destination. That metaphor meant nothing to Alden, and even if it had, he could not obtain the supplies or chant many of the chants. Not enough octaves in his vocal register, and besides, trying to say one magic spell in his head and a different one with his mouth. A fairly common requirement was like patting his head and rubbing his stomach times a thousand. You were supposed to mean the things you said, and he couldn't mean two completely different words at once as far as he knew. But Artanans and humans had really similar hands. And Alden's little bit of enhanced dexterity plus lots of repetitions of the finger exercises were doing him some favors. The spells were silly. They were for little bitty people, after all. But Alden just followed the patterns with his fingers, wove his authority in and out of the imaginary symbols they made in the air, and presto. A series of musical notes sounded through the vault, matching the rhythm of his ring fingers as they flicked through the air. It had required a few hours of practice and memorization to learn the signs. It was useless. And it was so damn cool. That is very good, Kibi said. 
You always complimented your partner when they got their spell right. Alden had gotten several right lately. He could light the promise sticks with one. With another, he could create tiny puffs of air that blew dust off of things. With a third, he was supposedly sanitizing his hands, though it was hard to know if it was working. He hoped Kibby would get one right soon, so that he could compliment her, too. Thank you. Alden tried not to grin too much. You aren't upset anymore. She was staring at his face with both eyes now. What? After you did that spell for the first time last week, you were upset. You left the vault in a hurry. Oh, that. I hurt my finger a little. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to do it again. But it's better now. Which finger? Kibby asked, her brows drawing together as she leaned over toward his cushion to examine him worriedly. You are only good at hand casting. You must take better care of yourself and remember your stretches. I will. Let's stretch now. Oh, sure. Alden felt guilty about it, but he let her lead him through the hand stretches. There was nothing at all wrong with his fingers. They should have spent every waking minute in the vault. But they couldn't. They'd go mad. A few times they had tried and managed for multiple days, but one of them inevitably lost their temper or, more dangerously, they started to feel despondent. Authority wasn't willpower, but you had to have at least a little willpower to keep asserting it when you were tired. Sometimes, if you were depressed and tired and feeling sorry for yourself, it started to seem like too much trouble to write the askiness again, and again, and again. So they did the best they could, and they had agreed to let themselves enjoy going outside. On the grounds of the compound after their lesson that day, Kibby threw chunks of gravel at Alden enthusiastically. He caught each one, flicked his wrist, and dropped the preservation in a smooth motion so that they flew off in different directions. Momentum preserved and redirected, one after another in rapid succession. Panting from exertion and clearly delighted, Kibby ran at him. You're so much better at it, Alden, she crowed. You never used to get it right, and now you've gotten it right every time. Alden gave a dramatic bow. I am the great rock, er, direction changer? Bouncer? I am the rock bouncer. He stood up. And there's something else. Hand me two pieces of gravel at once. Kibby's face lit up with excitement. She grabbed two pieces of the pale gray gravel and flung them at him. Ouch, he said. Hand them to me this time, not throw. Oh, I am sorry. She politely put two pieces side by side in her palm and offered them to him. They don't have to be touching, Alden said. Her eyes widened. She moved the rocks apart, and Alden stared at them for a moment, concentrating, then he grabbed one in each hand. Yes, he said, looking down at them, both preserved. Let me feel. He shifted his weight from foot to foot to keep the skill going and held out his hands. She prodded at the rocks. Alden, you did it. Two at once. Did you finally master the art of perceiving in multiple ways? No, said Alden. The art of perceiving in multiple ways had been mentioned in passing by instructor Gwen Lore. 
So Alden had been able to tell Kibi he thought perception would be important for practicing his skill, without mentioning that Joe had given him the idea. That's still really difficult for me. I did it in a different way. How? He considered how best to describe it. Forgive any poor word choices, he said finally. It's a hard thing to explain without them. I think my avowed skill is like a machine. Like the, he couldn't say it was like the car. They never talked about the car. Like the television. It comes with several possible options, but because a human can't feel or control the parts of the machine, it's a mix of our perception and the contract that determines which options are normally turned on or off. Kibi's eyes were narrowed, and she was biting her lower lip. It was her thinking face. So changing your perception changes the show? There's only one show, Alden said evenly. It's a show called Alden Preserves Objects. All my perception can change is the volume, or the clearness of the image, or it can do more than that. Probably, the description is bad, but learning to change your perception gives an avowed a way to select the options they can't feel. But you haven't learned? Instructor Gwen Lord did say it was a difficult art, Alden reminded her. Having the right perception was important with spell casting because it could cover minor mistakes, according to Gwen Lore. And with the right perception, powerful and talented wizards could push their spells in directions they weren't really supposed to go. Alden assumed mastering perception might, one day, similarly allow him to bend the outcome of his skill activation a little. In addition to being a way of triggering let me take your luggage's various inherent options. It did make sense that Joe had focused on it so much. Anyway, I haven't really learned to play around with my perception. I think that's probably how a human would normally need to train their skill. Probably it would be the best chance I had of learning to use it better. But I'm lucky. I have the best teacher in the universe. Instructor Gwenlore is renowned, Alden, Kibi said. She is a friend of distinguished Master Roden, but I do not think she is the best teacher in the universe. Always so serious about teachers. Alden looked her in the eyes. I didn't mean Instructor Gwenlore. I meant Instructor Kivi. She stared at him. Are you trying a friendly mean joke? It's not a joke, Alden said firmly. You taught me how to feel my magic correctly. You were patient, generous, and hardworking. Nobody else would ever be that patient with me or work that hard for me. I was a very slow learner. Very slow, she agreed. I thought I couldn't do it. I thought you couldn't do it either. But I didn't have anyone else to practice with. Alden snorted. And you're honest. The point is, thanks to you I can use my authority. The more I learn to feel it, and the more I practice controlling it, the more I can use it to directly sense how my skill works. Really? Yes. He showed her the gravel again. There's a part of the skill that starts the preservation. After it activates, that part naturally turns off. It wouldn't usually turn on again while the skill is in use. But because I can feel what part of the machine works that way now, I was able to practice with it. And I learned how to tell my authority to do it. 
It's really a lot like learning the control techniques for a spell. So, two things can be preserved now. Only easy things, though. Like rocks. There was a good reason for the skill to be automatically set to not work this way. It was taking almost every fiber of his authority to double run it even on rocks. The old Alden would have been on his knees, staring at the lab cabinets while Sophie threatened to disembowel him and told him to figure out the difference between his power to exert influence over reality and his will. Now, he was merely aware that his limit was approaching, and he needed to stop the preservation before he exhausted himself and left himself completely vulnerable to chaos. He dropped the rocks. So, that's enough skill use for today. Let's exercise. I will get the stopwatch. He gasped. You're timing me? After I've had such a hard practice session. So strict. You want to be the best avowed in the triplinet's service, don't you? What? No. My goals are much smaller than that. And set on Earth. Where did you get that idea? Kibi stood straighter and lifted her chin. As your first instructor, I berate you. You will shame my name if you do not become the best avowed. Huh? Is this a friendly joke? He asked hesitantly. She stared at him. If yours was not a joke, then mine is not a joke. You will be the best avowed. Kibi, I'm not that great. I think maybe you should lower your... You will be the best avowed. Instructor Kivi E. conked out right after their exercise session. Alden was still wide awake. He stood in the shower, letting the water blast him. It was running cold in a lot of places now, or not running at all, but the shower near the vault was still blazing hot. He'd overdone it today. He'd tired himself. He could feel the askiness creeping in. The chaos was like filthy fingers pressing and pressing against him, breaking through at the edges of his existence. Mostly the new edges. His authority had grown. And the fresh authority he'd earned through the many hours of practice with Kibi felt a little softer and more vulnerable than the rest. It was also beautiful. So much more beautiful and dear to him than the massive portion of his authority that was dedicated to his skill and trait. He cherished it partly because for a long while now he'd been aware of himself earning it and developing it through hard work. But more than that, he enjoyed it because it was free. Free to become anything and everything. Free to reshape the world in any way Alden chose and knew the spell for. Casting a spell, casting it with intention and full awareness of your own power, was awesome. In the original sense of the word, heavy emphasis on the awe. It was like Alden became more in some profound way every time he did. He wouldn't be surprised if wizards were all addicted to it. He was, and he could only perform a handful of spells intended for children. And he could only do them with the free authority. Alden had told Joe he thought an avowed's authority must be bound up with their skills and other talents so that it was easy to use. And Joe had been impressed that he was right. But I wasn't right, was I? He thought, resting his back against the shower wall. I was just saying things without understanding them. Back then I couldn't have understood them. I didn't even have the words. The skill was like a machine. 
It wasn't a great simile, but it was good enough. Alden contained within him a powerful, startlingly complex, rock-solid machine made of pure authority. He thought if the chaos ever became too much and he started to lose himself, the skill would be the last bastion that held him together, the very last thing to go. He could sense that about it, its fundamental strength. And one day, if Alden finally found his way back to a world with a system on it, all of his beautiful free authority would eventually be crammed into a permanent functional shape, too. Something useful. A new skill if he wanted one. Or the mysterious alternate path Joe had advised him to follow for let me take your luggage. A few points in agility. Some mental processing. A spell impression. Some speed. Whatever he was allowed to choose. I wonder how many levels I've earned. Three maybe? Or four? He didn't know how the system kept track. He was just guessing, but it had to be more than it should have been. His authority, both bound and free, was growing so much faster now that he was consciously using it all the time. The system will give me a lot of options when the time comes. I should be fine with that. A few months ago, I was just a guy bombing Hamlet quizzes. The skill is strong and useful. I should be grateful. I'll have choices but not the one I really want. Joe had said Avowed died if their free authority grew too large and unbalanced their fixed talents, so Alden couldn't just keep it. The professor hadn't been wrong when he advised Alden not to try learning wizardry. If he'd never done it, he wouldn't have known the profound joy of it. He wouldn't have felt the rush of swinging your power at the universe and making things happen. He would never have learned how to feel his skill, and so he wouldn't have known that. Although his avowed powers were indeed a gift for someone who wouldn't have been able to do magic if his life had taken any course but this, they were also a set of chains. The more Alden mastered his own authority, the more clearly he felt them. And they were really, really heavy. 49. Words for Demons on day 152, Kibby woke Alden up with a shriek. It was one of those days when their sleep cycles were way out of sync, so she just awakened as he went to sleep. He rolled off his mattress, heart pounding, and saw her sitting on the floor in front of their current television staring at the chaos map. Expecting the worst, even though he wasn't sure what the worst would look like, he raced over and stared at it with her. Someone's come, she said, waving her arms at the TV wildly and looking from it to Alden. Someone has come to fix it. Finally, far away, at the edge of the ever-growing wave of color, a chunk was missing. It was a smooth half-circle shape of clean map, like someone had carved the chaos away with a razor. Whoever or whatever had started repairing the damage had arrived. They weren't exactly at the location then A.R. had shown Alden months ago, but they were in that direction. Why there? Alden asked, excited and frustrated in equal measure to see help arrive at such a distant location. Why not start here in the center? People are in that direction maybe, Kibi said. We're people. We wrote that we were people on the roof. They'd painted a large message on the roof not long after Alden's birthday. It said, People living here, we politely request assistance. Not at all the urgent help. 
Alden would have preferred, but Kibi was the one who'd chosen the logograms for it and she was sure polite requests for assistance were the proper way to earn the benevolence of any passing wizards. A city used to be there, said Kibi, pointing a fair distance beyond the cleared zone. Not anymore, but there are some people still, I think. They spent the whole day watching the map, and then most of the next. It was nerve-wracking. Clearing the chaos must have been a two-steps-forward, one-step-back process. Their excitement peaked every time the cleared space expanded, and they fell into despair whenever the chaos filled it in. The map updated every 16 minutes. It was a roller coaster. All right, that's enough, Alden declared, after he heard Kibby growl angrily at the update for the 15th time. This is bad for our brain health. Mental health. That too. We are going to do math, figure out how long it's going to take them to get to us. And then we're not going to check it more than once a day. 26 times a day. Kibby demanded. Twice a day. Each, said Kibby. Fine, twice a day each. How far away are they, and how long will it take them to get here at their average clear speed? I don't know how to read the distances on the map well, but if you tell me. I can do it. I can do the math. If you are quiet. Alden shut his mouth. Kibi stared at the screen for a while, her bare toes wiggling like they always did when she was working on a problem. Then, her face fell. Oh. Alden's heart sank. He tried not to let it show. We get to share a room for a long time, then? It's, it's a long time, she said in a small voice. Well, that's all right. We'll be each other's company. We can watch a lot more shows. How long is it? 106 more Earth days. If they don't slow down. The chaos raked its fingers against Alden. He took a deep breath and pushed it back. That's not long at all. We're over halfway there. And maybe they'll send a ship ahead to look for people here. Do you think they will? I think I would. If I were in charge. He spent a lot of time staring up at the sky after that. Ships never appeared. In one class, instructor Gwen Lore started the recording several minutes before the young children entered the room. She spoke to Kibi directly, offering her encouragement and reminding her that she would be happy to answer any questions Kibi might have if she called. I wish I could call, Kibi said with a sigh. I wish we could, too, said Alden. It was day 174. They'd watched this video a dozen times by now. Do you think instructor Gwen Lore thinks I'm a bad student for never calling? I'm sure instructor Gwen Lore thinks anyone who used to live here is dead. I bet she thinks you're mastering all the lessons you've got. And she's looking forward to sending you more when communication is available. I wish I could go there. Kibi stared at the screen. To the classroom? I could live there, and every morning at first meal, I could ask instructor Gwen Lore a question. Do students live at the school? Alden asked curiously. He only ever saw the classroom, and it hadn't occurred to him it might be a boarding school. Even children younger than you? Some of them do, if their family isn't nearby. I could live there with you. You're too old. 
Alden gave her his best wounded expression. You are, Kibby insisted. Someone as old as you has to attend a university instead. I can go to instructor Gwenlore's school, and you can go back to Leafsong. I'm positive they don't accept human students, and I'd never pass one of Roden's lab exams. She didn't disagree with him. He was so terribly old that he didn't get loving lies. At Leafsong there was a girl who could do that, he said, nodding at the television. The instructor had just stepped over to turn off the smart screen built into the wall behind her. She almost never used it for her lessons. The previous class using this room must have been more advanced, because the handcast spell steps displayed on the board were really involved. They showed the fingers wrapped with string, like the cat's cradle spell Jelnor had used to chop up Stuart's foot. That spell? No, a different one but she used the string for it. It's a underscore 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 dot. Oh, new word. What does it mean? A thing that helps you concentrate, and your authority sticks to it a little bit so you can control more complicated spells. Maybe the new word was something like focusing tool? Sticks to it, he asked. Like glue? Kibby nodded. Can you use any string? Of course not. They're special. They have to be made so that they tie to you and become only yours. Alden sighed. He'd suspected as much. It would have been too easy if he could just grab some random twine and start blowing up things that offended him. Like the thorny vine that had busted out of Hazmat Greenhouse 3 and started sneaking its way across the compound a couple of weeks ago. It was purple and oozy, and though it was slow-moving, it definitely had bad intentions. Alden lit the day's promise stick with a few strategic finger flicks, and they knelt on their cushions. Throughout the lesson, Kibby seemed subdued. It was a chanting-focused lesson. Not something Alden could do, so during this one he usually cast the hand spells he'd memorized instead. Or, if he was in a masochistic mood, he tormented himself by letting his authority push and shove at the boundaries of his skill. Now that he'd woken up to the way his power was wrapped within the intricate confines of the skill, straining against it was turning into a compulsion, like wiggling a loose tooth. Sometimes it actually kept him from sleeping. Unlike him, Kibby was always laser-focused. She went through the motions of every lesson flawlessly as far as he could tell. The fact that she almost never actually cast anything was starting to bother him. She had power. Even if it was clumsier and stiffer than Alden's, it was still there. She worked at it. She should have been blowing the kids on screen out of the water by now. When the chanting lesson was over, she batted at the television quickly, trying to find another show. Is something wrong? Alden asked. No. Maybe one more ask? She didn't take pushiness well, but she was definitely off. If something's wrong, it's okay to tell your partner. We respect each other and help each other with class, don't we? Nothing's wrong with me, Kibi said in a high voice. She jabbed at the screen, and it flickered out. She stared down at it. Alden winced. That's all right, he said. We've still got a few more. 
They had long since rescued every working screen in the facility from tablet-sized to medium television-sized and stored them here in the vault. It seemed to do a little good. The place was packed to the ceiling with supplies now, which made it less sterile and creepy. But they only had enough empty space to sleep and sit. Instead of going to pick another television, Kibi just kept looking at her reflection in the dark screen. I can't do both, she said in a small voice. I can't even try anymore. Alden waited. I can't do a spell and keep safe. I thought I could. I was getting stronger for a long time. But then I, I don't think I am anymore. I think today I'm less me, instead of more. A uniquely Artanen word for me. An expression of identity that included one's place in relation to everything else in the universe. Alden knew what she meant. He hadn't known when it would happen, or which of them it would happen to first. But he had known, ever since she told him it would be a hundred more days, that they would probably break down before help came for them. He'd started to feel the impending disaster of it lurking somewhere near them. He could still assert himself. But his askew moments were worse. He kept pulling himself back together, and he thought that the process of wearing down and recovering was still making him stronger. But it was beginning to seem like a fragile state of affairs. He was getting tired. One day, he would get too tired, and the chaos would start to win the battle it had been losing against him all this time. An image lit up his mind, one of Kibi's little sister, W-I-V-B-E, still and dead in her father's arms with hardly a sign of what had caused it. He tried not to let it show on his face. Are you hurt? She shook her head. Is sleeping under the coat not helping? You said you only gave it to me to keep me warm. Alden didn't answer. I thought it was helping. Now I can't tell. Don't be afraid. I have plans. She finally looked away from her reflection. A tear rolled down her cheek. You do? Yes. More than one even. If the first one doesn't work, we'll try the second. If the second doesn't work, we'll try the third. How many plans? That was the face that was begging for a lie. So many, he said. So many that a hundred days isn't even enough to try them all. Alden had three plans that weren't really plans at all. They were just insane things he was willing to attempt after every other option had been exhausted. Living in Demonville made you think about who you really were and what you could really do when you had your back pressed up against the wall. Alden had learned a lot about himself. Now, he just needed to manage what he hadn't been able to up until now. Figuring out which of the first two plans was the least likely to result in a horrific outcome. He sat on his mattress, writing in one of his notebooks, while Kibi lay under the lab coat watching a talk show on a tablet. The host was interviewing a Grivik. It seemed that Sophie's sense of humor wasn't unique. The show had improved Kibi's mood. She kept giggling and repeating things the Grivik said as the Artanen translations went across the screen. Slaughter him, she whispered. Then she laughed again. Hey, short and violent one, said Alden. When you finish with that show, can I ask you a question? Kibi paused the device and sat up. About your plans? 
When are you going to tell them to me? As soon as I pick my favorite instructor. I don't want to embarrass myself in front of you. Let's talk about demons. Yay. Alden snorted so hard he almost dropped the notebook. I wanted to ask you about the big thing, the one that made the trails in the grass before it all died. Could it still be out there, or would it have faded away like the bugs? I don't know. Could there be more like it? I guess so. There aren't many underscore 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 animals on the Gund, though, or any people around here, so probably not. Yikes. So, the big ones hunt animals for food? They're intelligent enough for that? What? Kibby looked confused. Maybe, I guess, but that's not what I mean. I explained this to you when we first got here. I told you all the different kinds of demons there could probably be on Moon the Gund with the current level of corruption. Alden grinned sheepishly. I memorized all the words for demon, but I never have understood exactly what the differences are between them. She glared at him, stood up, and walked over with the tablet. She swiped away from the shows and brought up something that looked like a researcher's hand-drawn notes. She flipped through them, showing Alden page after page of scribbled Artanen numbers and charts. He understood none of it until she got to a page with an embedded video of a sandy-colored grasshopperish bug in a clear box. The box was in the very vault they were living in now. Mesmerized, Alden watched as the grasshopper slowly morphed. It darkened, lost definition, and gradually became one of the demon bugs he was familiar with. It spiraled up out of its case. Then, some of the runes he was currently sitting on top of lit up, and the demon was vaporized instantaneously. Kibi said the word they usually used for demon and tapped on the screen. My father studied them. It was important to know more about them because they're unique. They have a weak presence, but almost the whole species has high. I don't understand that word. If you don't understand, you are supposed to say right away. Language teacher Kibi said severely. Instead of going around for months using all kinds of different words for demon without knowing what they mean. This is a science word that means potential to change, but in a specific way. There are also an and some more. It's a category that describes the way the bug changes in response to chaos. Kibi nodded. There are lots of categories. For example, things like the food in the greenhouse are different from the bugs. Because what happens to it is more random. Mostly it dies as the corruption increases, but it does all kinds of different things. If all lettuce seeds turned into thunder lettuce. Kibi groaned. Then would it be in the same category as the bugs? No. Because the big lettuces don't magnify and spread chaos the way the bugs do. Oh, the category for demon bugs includes a contagion factor. That actually made sense. The grasshoppers didn't just turn into a different kind of grasshopper, they turned into something much more dangerous. That would make them worthy of study. There must have been a lot of categories. It would involve some extremely specific scientific terms if he got into it with Kibi. 
and that kind of conversation could take hours for them to work through. It was a rare opportunity, though. How many bored, genius Artinan children who'd grown up with a bunch of demon researchers could you expect to meet in your life? Alden was about to commit to getting himself educated when Kibby said, it's bad to be like the grasshoppers. You're not allowed to work here if you are. People can be like the grasshoppers? Yes, the grasshoppers are strange. They're all the same way. Most species are more like the lettuce, every member is different. So not just different categories for grasshoppers and lettuce, but different categories for every lettuce plant? Yeah, that would take a while to learn. Is the demon bug category the worst one? She shook her head. No, I think the worst ones are for things that come from a broken dimension. We didn't study those here. Maybe distinguished Master Roden did, but that would have been private work. After those, the worst category is dash. It means a being with high authority and high potential for magnifying and spreading chaos they encounter. Then there is. Wait, said Alden, a suspicion growing inside him. High potential for spreading chaos. Like the grasshoppers. That's a way people can be? Yes, said Kibi. People like that can't come to this part of Moon the Gund. We all had to be tested every year. I had to get tested more often because my authority was higher. That made you more likely to have high potential for spreading chaos? Kibi frowned. I don't think so. I think it just means it would be worse if I did. High chaos potential is a bad thing, Alden said. Kibi nodded. Um, just out of curiosity, what does a person with high chaos potential turn into if they end up in a place like Moon the Gund? A demon, right? Do they look like the grasshoppers or? I don't know. That's a very bad kind of demon. We didn't study those here either. She looked at his face. You got pale. Don't worry. There aren't any of those around. How do you know? The map would be worse, not red. Red isn't the worst color? No. It's very bad for Moon the Gund, but it's not very bad compared to other places. What if there's someone around with high chaos potential and they just haven't turned into a demon yet? Alden asked, trying to hold back a sudden swell of panic. What if they're about to do it any minute, Anne? No. That's not how it works. The things with high chaos potential turn right away, as soon as the corruption reaches a certain level. He blinked at her. They do? That why the grasshoppers changed before everything else started to. You're sure? I'm sure. One of the functions of the system was to exert a stabilizing effect on my existence. Alden had been assuming that meant it stabilized and avowed compared to whatever the normal amount of instability for a human was. And maybe it did sometimes? But it had never occurred to him that it might also be capable of making a repair to a part of someone that was weak, broken, susceptible to demonization. Wait, do all avowed have high chaos potential? Or only some of us? Hannah tested bubble of patient waiting on lots of people, she said, and it only had weird effects on some children. 
but I'm sure she probably tested it on tons of avowed because that's who all of her friends were. Is it chaos potential that really matters for getting chosen or the amount of authority you're born with? Or some combination of the two? The whole chaos potential thing had only ever been a theory on Earth as far as he knew. Alden just didn't have enough info. Maybe he'd had high potential and then Gorgon had fixed it? And then the system had doubled up on him? His authority battered against his skill and it held as it always did. Kibi was squinting at him. Were you scared you were about to turn into a demon? No, he said. That's dumb. We'd both be gone by now if we magnified chaos. Since we don't, our authority can protect us. Now that it's fraying, we probably will just, we'll just, like regular people. Her lip trembled. I have lots of plans, remember? Alden said quickly. And this conversation helped me pick which one I want to try first. It's a good plan? It's great. That was definitely overselling it. It's weird, though. Please don't think I'm too weird to be friends with anymore. I won't, she said solemnly. 